everybody. My guest today is the owner of Sound Guy Productions and has has done many things professionally over the course of his life. What I love most about this guy is he is a hustler. He never gives up. No matter what's going on, things are going great, or if, if he's going through a rough patch, he never gives up. He's always right there back in it with a smile on his face. He's an awesome guy. His name is Rich Morris. Uh, so, so yeah, this is uh, some, some crazy times right now. This is, this, so this is the first time that uh, I've done an episode since this happened. Oh. I did six before all of this shit went down. And uh, so the last time I recorded one uh, was with Steven. You know nice. Steven, right? Oh, yeah. Vanvoort. And that was on, I think, March 8th. And then everything kind of blew up March 11th. And so, yeah, I couldn't get anybody to come over here. I was asking people in April and really? everybody was like, no, still, we're still worried about it. You know, we don't want to do it. Uh, so I'm glad you came. Yeah. It's awesome. Definitely. So what, what, uh, why don't you tell everybody kind of your background and, and what you do and why this is difficult for you too? Um, well, let's see. I mean, I was born in Portland, you know, kind of raised in the area, kind of between here and Cottage Grove, which is down in the Eugene area. Um, I started playing guitar when I was about 17. Mm -hmm. By about my late 20s, I'm like, you know, this rock star thing ain't panning out the way I planned it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I got to figure out something else to do. And, and I always kind of messed around with, you know, doing sound on little four tracks and stuff. And so I ended up going to school to learn how to do sound and loved it. And then after I got out of school, I worked for a couple sound companies, didn't really like the way they were doing it. So I started my own mm -hmm. and uh, basically just doing club, club sound for, you know, small concerts and stuff. Then, um, end up getting a job at the convention center and that kind of opened my eyes to the, the corporate side of things where, well, this is cool. I could do what I like to do and make money. This is kind of awesome. Yeah. And, but I, I always come back to the music side of things cause I still just love being involved in music. And, um, so I've kind of played the, the music side of things and then the corporate side of things. But it's, it's always interesting to me because there isn't just doing sound for a band or just putting a microphone in front of somebody. There's the lighting and the video, and there's just so many aspects and I'm intrigued by it all. And, you know, I want to learn it and be the best that I can at it. And, um, and incorporate that into my business, which is really weird because it's like started out as sound guy productions. Cause I'm doing sound for concerts, but now I'm doing lighting and I'm doing some video and, you know, I have staging and all that kind of stuff. And, um, so it's kind of broadened beyond what I initially intended it to be, mm -hmm. which has been cool. You know, it's like, I think that where you get stuck in business is, you have an initial idea and you just stick with that and where you really don't know where the business is going to take you. And it's, it's been intriguing to 
see where the business has taken me versus where I wanted the business to go. Um, now with this whole COVID thing, all of a sudden, everything I've done for the last 20 plus years, I can't do, you yeah. know, I can't do sound for concerts. I can't do lighting for concerts. I can't do, um, you know, production for events. So it's like, well, then what I got, I got to kind of step back to where I was 20 years ago and reinvent myself, mm -hmm. um, which what that is, I'm, I don't know. I'm still working <laughs> on, it. <laughs> um, you know, I got, I got this job at, at Amazon to just kind of pay my basic bills right now while I figure it out. Um, that's definitely not a career move. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of getting me through the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, what was the process like getting hired down there? Is there just like a line out the door? They, are they just, so most of it is uh, doing it online mm -hmm. and then they have you come down, they take your picture. You have to go through um, like this video and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, take a drug test, all that kind of stuff. Well, I was the last one of what they call the blue badge, which is like a full-time employee. Everybody after us has been seasonal. So a friend of mine, he went in a couple of weeks after we did and he goes, yeah, they wanted my ID. They took my picture. They, all right, here's your start date. Get out of here next. And so they're just, they were going through, I mean, at one point, I think I seen a line of like 200 people standing out there waiting to get jobs. That's crazy. And I mean, if they wanted to, could they hire 500 more people or is it? They're still hiring people. But I mean, like, is all the space taken up by people right now? Would See, they have to build a bigger warehouse? And that's what I don't know, because um, they said that the building is uh, about a million square feet. Um, there's three floors. I haven't even seen the top two floors. Serious? Yeah. So I'm just at the, the bottom floor and in one certain spot. So I can kind of see the dock. I can kind of see where like the robots and stuff are. So there's just stuff I can't even see on the first floor, let alone what's going on on the other two. And that's just <clears throat> the Troutdale location. Yeah. There's also Hillsborough. There's North Portland. Mm -hmm. um, I think St. Helens. Wow. That's just in this, this area. Yeah. Um, it's insane. Yeah. And to see, you know, there's just miles and miles and miles of conveyor belts and they're all, um, you know, electronic and, um, you know, everything's like has a barcode on it. So it's getting scanned and I'm, the technology on the thing is, is just intriguing. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm kind of thinking about it and it's like, well, geez, there must be probably a billion dollars worth of, you know, uh, technology in here. Yeah let alone, you know, all the products and it's, it's impressive. You yeah. know, when you look at a guy that basically started a business in his garage to this, what it's become. And mm -hmm. I think I read something about there's like, um, 75,000 plants of these warehouses in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, just the one is beyond my mental capability of how do you grow that from scratch, yeah. let alone 75,000 of those. Yeah. How you scale it like that is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have no idea how you would even begin to do that. Um, and I mean, a lot of it is centered around the idea of prime, right? Getting packages within a few days. Mm -hmm. 
Because I imagine the ones you're pulling down here, those are probably one day delivery, right? I think so. It's probably somebody's typing it in, it comes to you, you're throwing it out. Like it's all happening within an hour, probably. Probably. Well, yeah. I mean, since since the whole COVID thing happened, because since I got in when things were still kind of normal, I mean, it was fast. And um, I was asking, you know, well, because it can kind of keep track of how many units per hour you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think I was doing about 750, uh, which is a lot of product. And they're like, yeah, the average is about 1,200. <laughs> and so then they slowed everything down for social distancing and stuff. Yeah. And I'm kind of averaging between six to 800, you know, and it's like, I'm trying to go as fast as I can, but you can only go so fast when the product's only going and coming at you so fast. Yeah. So yeah. Um, they've slowed everything down a lot, but they're still getting the products out. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's just, it's putting more pressure on other plants or I don't know. I mean, it's such a weird, weird business. Yeah. The craziest thing to me is how they decide what to ship to you. Like, how do they, they must have some sort of algorithm where it's like, this is selling really well right now. Let's ship a bunch more to Troutdale. Right. You know, maybe people in the area buy more windbreakers or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, to, to fill the section, because you're not actually putting the product in the section, right? You're just pulling no. the product from and sending it out. No. So, so what, and this is where, because I don't see everything, I don't know exactly how it all works, but it seems like that they grab the products, put it into a tote. The tote comes down and somebody scans each one, puts it in a tray. The tray goes through, comes down this huge conveyor belt and it just starts kicking it out to, you know, the section it needs to go to. So then it'll come up, we'll grab it, put it in the wall, they'll grab it and then put it into a box and then ship it out. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting how many, people it goes through before it even goes out the door mm -hmm. um and and i don't even know exactly how the whole thing works <laughs> and it, you know and how it happens so fast so you know it's like somebody order it they'll have um you know these totes come down with just uh -huh. a bunch of stuff so i think that it's like well They've had 14 of this item ordered, so they just throw a bunch into this tray mm -hmm. and then it gets kicked out to the certain areas where it's going to be shipped to. Yeah. And it's, the technology is crazy. Yeah. Well, that's the other question too, is like, how much longer do they need you as a human to do it? Like you just said a minute ago, they have robots in there. Right. Why, why don't they have robots doing what you're doing right now? Well, I think they're still developing that technology. But it's close, right? I think it's, yeah, it's getting close. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that there's some things where you're always going to have to have a human involved in it, but I think it's going to get to the point sooner or later that it's going to take care of, you know, 90% of it, which makes sense from a business standpoint, because oh, yeah. then you don't have to pay an hourly wage and yeah. benefits and, you know, paid time off and all that kind of stuff. So just build a robot for a quarter million dollars and, let them do their thing. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it's 
it's gonna be crazy because right now they're probably one of the largest employers in the country. I read something about when all this started, they were planning on hiring, uh, I think like a hundred thousand people. Man. And, um, that the first quarter of 2020, they, uh, they did $75 billion in sales. Damn. And that's not even filling all the orders that they wanted to. That's going half speed. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I bought some, I, I can't remember what it was, just like some regular item, uh, the first week of April and it was supposed to be prime and it took four weeks to get here because right. it, it got shoved down the list for all the essential items, I think. Right. Yeah. And now it's back on prime. Like I ordered something the other day and it came within a day or two. Well, and, it, and it's interesting too, because the, there's, it's not all sold by Amazon. They're basically fulfilling orders for other companies. Mm -hmm. And so then you have somebody that's um, selling toilet paper. Well, then all of a sudden, um, you know, it's what, 30 bucks a, uh, for a case of toilet paper where it should have been 10 bucks. And so they're trying to- um, Do the prices go up on, on Amazon? Oh yeah. Yeah. But it had, it wasn't Amazon itself. It's just the people that they're fulfilling the orders for. So they were trying to shut those down as quick yeah, as they found yeah. out about them. But even like, um, so I was trying to order this, uh, box to do live streaming and they're about 130 bucks. Mm -hmm. They're $350 now. <laughs> if, you, all, if you could find them. Yeah. They're all on back order. Yeah. yeah. And so I did end up finding one for 170 and, but it was coming from Germany and it's stuck in the Netherlands for the last 12 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a bunch of, uh, black magic stuff that, um, that got put on back order for right. weeks and weeks. Cause dude, they can't make it fast enough. Everybody that was doing something out in the world is just like doing it in their house now. Exactly. Streaming it. Well, you know, you have all these, you know, bands and artists that they can't go do shows. So they're doing you know, in-home concerts mm -hmm. and, you know, you can only do so much with a phone, you know, so then you try to have a couple cameras and then you have to have the black magic stuff. And, mm -hmm. and so then all of a sudden they're completely sold out. Um, and then you have like the churches doing like the drive-in services. So the, um, what is it? The FM transmitters mm -hmm. to be able to send it from the mixing board to a radio station, yeah. you can't get one of those either. Really? They're all sold out. Well, I saw that there's a bunch of uh, drive-in theaters that are like coming back now too. Which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I think that is so cool. Yeah. I I had only been to one once, I think, and it was up in Hood River. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh -uh. Yeah, there was one up there kind of up on the heights and it must have closed down like, because I was young, I was probably like, 10 or 12 or something. So it must've closed down in the nineties at some point. Really? Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they're coming back, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Cause, uh, I don't know, dude, that's like a, it's like a relic of history that most people don't even know about. It is, but it's kind of weird too, because the whole thing with the drive-ins back in the fifties and, and in the olden days was, it was a social gathering. Yeah. So, you know, you go to the drive-in and then just hang out with all your friends, you know, you'd meet at the concession stands. Well, mm -hmm. how do you have a social distancing, social interaction? It's, 
And that's where it's so bizarre right now. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, I get, we got to stay, stay safe, yeah. you know? And I get that we're craving that human interaction. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you find that balance? Yeah. Uh, we were talking about it a little bit when you got over here about how, uh, at the start, everybody kind of didn't know what was happening. And so everybody kind of locked down really quickly, which was good right. and probably helped a lot of people not get sick and a lot of people not die. But yeah, now it seems like everybody's been chilling inside for eight weeks and uh, people are just losing it, man. Right. <laughs> they're losing well, they're ready to get outside and do something. And I think some of the issue too is that it's like, well, we have this serious pandemic going on and we need to take it seriously. I absolutely agree with that. But it's like people are losing their businesses that, you know, have spent their lives building. And on top of it, um, I think they said between February and March, uh, suicides were up 336%. Wow. And it's like, um, you know, and I've read a few articles where police are just going from domestic violence call to domestic violence call and domestic violence call. Um, The only thing that's down right now is child abuse because it gets reported at school and none of them are in school. Well, I, I saw something about that too. The other thing that's down right now is school shootings because no one's in school. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) I saw that. I was like, uh, I guess that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been weird. Uh, I mean, I I know everybody's trying to deal with it in their own way. And some people are trapped in a house with people they don't want to be around and other people are alone. And dude, you go a few weeks without talking to person face to face or even like hugging someone. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Oh yeah. You start craving that human affection and you don't even realize that you needed it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it, and I think it's, it's definitely even important for, for single people, you know, it's like you see your buddy, you know, give him a hug at, at the bar or whatever. Cause it's like, you still have to have some sort of physical contact and, you know, um, just to kind of feel a part of society and, you know, have that friendship or whatever, and to be kind of take that away and then, you know, be at home by yourself. And, and I think that the biggest issue right now is that you have all these people isolated in their homes, stuck with their own thoughts mm-hmm. that haven't dealt with issues during their whole life. And it's like, well, now you have to think about it and deal with it. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to affect different people in different ways. You know, some people are actually going to kind of work through their stuff. Some people are going to be drinking all the time. Some people are, <laughs> you know, are just going to drive themselves crazy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that has been, I mean, a super important thing for me to learn about myself in that you have X amount of hours per day where you usually fill, if you're lucky, you get eight of them are sleep and then eight of them are work. And then, you know, you really only get like four or five more where you're doing something you want to do. Right. And when this is going on, nobody's working you know, maybe you're sleeping more, but you're, you're not doing anything you used to do. You're not going to restaurants. You're not hanging out with your friends. You're just basically drinking or w- watching TV or whatever. And there are so many people who, who need a purpose, 
even oh, absolutely. even if it's just going to work at Target or whatever, like that fills a certain amount of your day and like helps you feel like you accomplished something. Oh, absolutely. And and that's where I'm as hard as the job is, I'm blessed that I have something to do mm-hmm. because um I've struggled with depression. Yeah. I have most of my life and I'm scared to see what would happen if I was stuck in my house for, you know, 60 days by myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm glad that I have something to do to occupy my time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool that, uh, I mean, that's, that's one of the cool, I've known you for a long time. That's one of the coolest things about you is that no matter what's going on, you're always hustling. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> You've always got like three <laughs> things on the back burner. You're making money over here. You're making money over there. You're doing a charity over here. Right. You got some music project going on. Like you're always hustling. And when you told always me, doing something. you're always doing something. <laughs> and we told me that the other day, you're like, yeah, I got a job at the Amazon warehouse. And I was like, what? <laughs> of course you did. I was like, man, that's cool. Yeah. Got to do something. Yeah. You know? And then, and I think that a lot of it was my dad, you know, he, he had an auto body shop and a towing company mm-hmm. and um, he, he was a business owner, um, you know, constantly hustling, trying to get work and, but he was cheap. So who do you think's going to work for him? His kids. You know? <laughs> yeah. And of course, Free labor. and of course, you know, we're working cheap and uh, you know, so I learned to work hard early yeah. and uh, you know, by the time I got out of high school, I had two jobs, uh-huh. you know, when I was in college, um, you know, I had like five part-time jobs yeah. while I'm going to school and I, I like being productive Yeah, and it, it's a double-edged sword because I think in some aspects, I don't deal with some of my underlying lish uh-huh. issues and, I, but I think in some aspects, I kind of always think about things in my head while I'm being productive. And mm-hmm. so it kind of puts a positive spin on things. Um, and I just like, I like working. I like getting things done. I like, you know, and there's nothing cooler than doing a big production show and going, I did that. Yeah. I was a part of that. You yeah. Know, this is amazing. Yeah. You know, and then I like the accomplishment of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, any profession where you can start with nothing and build something and then like look at it and say that is right. super cool. Like oh, if you're, if you're building a fence or if you're, you know, if you're a drywall drywaller, like if you start with zero and then you accomplish it, even if it's just like mundane stuff that nobody else would think was cool, it's right. still like, it fills you with a, a sense of accomplishment. Right. It's cool. Well, and it sounds like too, like with your dad, it wasn't as though he was just going to give you, anything it's like hey you you want to get somewhere in life you got to work for it and you got to achieve it well he wasn't in the position to give us anything um you know even right before he died um we got to get that car done so that we can have money to buy parts to start working on that car and you know he was just living from gig to gig Mm -hmm. and um and there was 10 of us you know it's like well, I can't send you to college because if I do for you, then I have to do it for all of them. And I can't afford that. And, uh, you know, and he was, he was paying a lot of money in child support. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, him and my mom didn't get along at all, especially after they got divorced. So they were in court all the time and, you know, and it, it drained him, you know, financially and emotionally, I think too. Um, and so it wasn't really a situation where I can give you that, that head start, but I'm going to teach you how to do it on your own. Yeah. And I appreciated that. Yeah. No, you that's know. super valuable. It's the, I hated him for it when I was younger. It's oh, like, sure man, he's just such a slave driver, <laughs> you know, but it's like, you know, then after he passed away, it's like, you know, he gave me the most important thing of being able to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's why I've always been a hustler because it's like, well, nobody's going to give me anything. Yeah. If I can, if I'm going to have anything, it's going to be because I, I earned it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a super important thing to teach anybody because I don't know, man, the older I get, the more I realize I'm the only one I can rely on for anything. Right. Like I have friends, I have uh, family who help me out and give me love and support and whatever. But like at the end of the day, you can only rely on yourself. Like other people are going to crash cars or quit jobs or walk away or do whatever. Like it's, it's on you Mm -hmm. and you can't just blame other people. And sometimes people want to help and they're just not in the position. And, you know, you look at this whole thing that is so bizarre because we're all living paycheck to paycheck. And then all of a sudden there's no income for what 40 million people right now. Mm, And so it's like, even if, somebody would want to help doesn't mean that they're in the position to be able to. Um, you know, you got to kind of take care of yourself first before you can help somebody else. And that's where, you know, you got to kind of start there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's hard to evaluate what's going on because we're still in the middle of it. All right. Uh, all you can really try to do is compare it to something else, you know, and I keep telling my kids, I'm like, this is huge. I'm like, I, I know you're you're pissed that you can't go to school and you don't get to see your friends and stuff, but like this is this is a big deal. This is like a paragraph in the history book. Oh, absolutely. You know, like this is besides like 9-11, Berlin Wall coming down, uh Vietnam, like this is the biggest thing to happen since World War II. Right. It's affecting the entire world. And nobody knows when it's going to be over or what's going to happen. Well, then that's where it's, it's so bizarre. Cause it's like, everybody wants to compare it to something else. Oh, well this compared to the pandemic of, you know, yeah. we don't know. Yeah. I mean, we could kind of guess and, you know, hypothesize on it, but at the end of the day, you know, it's like, we don't know because we've never gone through this before. This is something completely new. And, um, you know, I never thought it would be a situation where after 20 years of being in the same industry that I'm going to be working a minimum wage job <laughs> yeah. at almost 50 years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. We're, unfortunately, our industry relies solely on people being able to communicate face to face with a bunch of other people at the same time. Right. And when you take that away... Like, I don't know, I mean, with the exception of like the airlines, um, the restaurant business, like, I don't know of any other industry that has been af- affected as hardly as ours. No. Because, I mean, what, what, are you, what are you gonna do? Our 
industry is based on social interaction. Yeah. And, but that's where it's also kind of cool to see it transform into seeing online auctions and, you know, seeing how people are trying to take what we have versus what we had and try to make it work. Um, you know, it's like, I see every day, you know, another artist online, you know, doing a, a live stream and, you know, cause they, they still want to perform. And it's like, just because you can't do it out in front of a bunch of people doesn't mean that you can't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing, um, you know, nonprofit auctions still happening. And it's like, that's huge because especially the nonprofit sector, those auctions fund them for the year. So if it's like, if all of a sudden they can't have those, those auctions, they don't have any money to operate for the next year. And some of those are very important um, entities that are necessary to help people to survive because yeah. we can't rely on the government. Yeah. Obviously, mm -hmm. because it's like how many people are still waiting for unemployment two months later? Um, you know, we keep talking about the stimulus checks and it's like, cool. So 1200 bucks is supposed to get us through for the next three months. <clears throat> um, do you know how they calculated that? Oh, I, I have no idea. The federal minimum wage is, uh, I think it's 750. So it's 750 times 40 All right. times four. So that's one month and it's rounded up. So 1160 is the amount you would make minimum wage at the federal level for one month. That's one month of minimum wage pay, $1,200. Wow. Dude, most people can't even pay their rent with that. Not in the Northwest? No. I mean, what, the average rent around here is what, 17? Yeah, I mean, it varies. I mean, so it's like, okay, you get a $1,200 check, that doesn't even cover your rent. Yeah. Now, I'm sure you go to Alabama and it's like, we're good for three months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah. And yeah. That's, and that's where it's... It's, we're not all in the same situation. You know, mm -hmm. we're all in different situations. And depending on what part of the country you are is really vast as far as being able to afford living on minimum wage or, um, you know, $1,200 stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have the answers, but... Seems like someone smarter than me should. One would think. <laughs> <laughs> That's why smart people existed to uh, to do the things we don't know how to do. Yeah, man, it's crazy. I don't know. It, as it keeps going on and on, it, it seems like, you know, when it first started happening in March, it was like, oh, there's no way they're going to cancel the school year. And then right. they canceled the school year. Oh, there's no way they're going to uh, shelter in place for months at a time and then that happened and pretty soon you're just hanging out in your living room you're like what the fuck is going on man <laughs> i was working at a and a uh, and doing like one of the last gigs i did and uh somebody s said that they just you know checked online and saw that the nba canceled their season yeah and it's like that was a big one um okay i guess it is serious now yeah. i mean that is 
a big deal. Yeah. And then to see everything shutting down, I mean, from small businesses to large corporations to, I mean, government agencies. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't even get in to pay my water bill. I am so upset about that. <laughs> I'm sure they'll remember. I'm sure they will. But it's it's interesting to see the country shut down. Yeah. And but at the same time it's scary that it can happen. Yeah. Well, and it's scary what people will do. I mean, historically the reason revolutions start is because people are desperate. And you have to you have to cross over that threshold where it's not safer, but it's it's a better path to do something crazy like blow up a building or start some super violent protest. It's better to do that than to chill where you're at. And desperate people do stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's how this country has never seen something like that happen. I mean, short of probably the American revolution, like it's never gotten so bad that people were willing to throw away their lives for some cause or to like overthrow the government or whatever. Well, and and I think that that's why it's so important to that they jumped on trying to get a stimulus out to people because it's like you get people so desperate and then the shit's going to hit the fan. Yeah. And so it's like if, you can keep people from completely getting desperate, then that's going to kind of even things out for a little bit. Um, we don't have the bread lines like, like back in the great depression and yeah. stuff like that, you know? And it's like, now could you imagine if they shut off the internet that would cause <laughs> some, yeah. some severe panic? Oh uh, yeah. You know, things, things would hit the fan at that point, yeah. you know? And so it's like, they are taking care of certain measures to make sure it doesn't get to that point. It's getting close, Mm -hmm. but it's not getting to that extreme measure yet. It keeps escalating. It's gotten worse and worse in the last few days. Um, There's just no telling what is going to happen this close to the election and with Trump in office because whether or not you support him or you don't, he he outdoes himself every single day. Right. You know, anything that he says or puts out on Twitter or in a press conference or whatever, it's always more crazy than the last day. So, dude, it's just this constant cycle of Trump, 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 Trump. Yeah, I mean, you right. go through like your newsfeed and every article has him in it somehow. And that's the goal. Right. Because it, it's great advertising. Oh yeah, no, he he knows what he's doing in terms of cap um, capturing your attention. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I don't know, man. Regardless of any other event in the world, he's always the number one thing, and it's it's crazy. It's and I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like you know. Watching some kids fight in the schoolyard and going, I'm just kind of interested to see how this is going to pan out. <laughs> I can break it out, but you know what? No, because I'm going to let this go. <laughs> Tommy's got some good knuckles. Let's see what happens. Yeah, dude. It's so insane. I, I don't know. I like to look back at things that have happened and try to, like I was reading the other day about um, 
all the civil unrest in the 60s. Like JFK gets shot in November 63. Uh, his brother gets shot, I think, in like 65. Right. MLK gets shot somewhere in between 64, 65. You got three enormously prominent figures that got murdered. Then you've got the Vietnam War. You've got all these hippies. Uh, all the stuff that was happening in the music scene, like that decade was so insane. And I don't know, cause I could, I could never go back and live it. Right. right. I don't know if it was more crazy then than it is now, or if now is just like so bonkers, people don't know what to shit. But the thing is, is it seems like when you look back at that era, there was, it was a necessary thing to happen to get to where we are now because it's like you had the 50s where women were predominantly in the home men went out to work and then things kind of started changing where women started going out to work and but they weren't treated equally and um so you had to have that women's rights movement mm -hmm. to make things more even for everybody. And, uh, you, you know, the, the racism that happened then, you know, I mean, it was, it was really predominant and had to change. And, you know, it's like Martin Luther King was a major factor in changing things then now is, did it fix it? Not at all. I mean, look at what's going on right now. I mean, there's, there's still racism here. It's, mm -hmm. you cannot deny that. Is it, as bad as it was back then, I don't think so. I think we're we're evolving. It's a slow process. Yeah. And it's like, it's not going to be, well, you know, people just aren't racist anymore. Yeah. You're still going to have lingering things. And especially with, you know, older generations and stuff, it they weren't innately racist. Yeah. But compared to how people are now, they had more of those tendencies subconsciously. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. But we have evolved as as a species, mm -hmm. and we're better, but it doesn't mean that we're there. Yeah. I mean, we're still fixing, you know, um, you know, feminism and stuff, which I think it was a necessary thing back then. I think it's kind of gone to this radical, weird situation, kind of like, kind of like unions. Um, you know, it's like it was really needed the way that it happened um, back then where now it's just kind of, well, he's been in his job for 25 years, so you can't fire him even though yeah. he doesn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like, there's got to find that balance of it. And I think that that's what makes the world spin mm -hmm. is that conflict and that constantly changing. And hopefully we're getting better some things we're not, you know, but it's like you look at the technology and it's like, man, there's so much cool stuff going on now that we didn't have in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, there was a lot of issues that we had in the 60s that we don't have now. Um, you know, some of them we still do, but they're better. Um, it's just the interesting part about life to see how things change. Yeah, just the human experience for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely, um, People... I think the majority of people genuinely don't care. They don't care 
what your race is. They don't care what your sexual orientation is. Most people just want to love somebody, have kids, make money, take care of them. Exactly. Go to Hawaii, whatever. Most people just want to do that. It's, it's people who feel like they're going to make a change or get radicalized for some reason that have to just go way too far to the extreme on either side. Right. Most people are just chilling right here. They just want to live in peace, be cool with everybody. They don't hate anything. They don't hate anyone. Or they hate everybody. Well, those are the people <laughs> on the extremes. Those, those are the people like that. And I think you're right. I think it it's an issue of time. I mean, there's still neo-Nazis. Right. I mean, we found out in, uh, at the latest, 1945, that Nazism was not a good thing. Right. And there's still people, almost 100 years later, that are touting the benefits or, or the, you know, the reasons to, to go with that. And so I don't know how many years it takes for things to be copacetic or maybe they never get that way. Well, I don't know. look at religion. I mean, how many how many wars have been fought and oh, you know issues since the beginning of time mm-hmm. over God? Yeah, you know, and it's like, and it was interesting because you know, obviously working at Amazon, I got a lot of time to just think <laughs> about things. and I was I was thinking about religion, and it's like, there's why is it that you think your God is better than my God. And why does it really matter? And it's like, but I think if we really took it down to its basic level of that God loves us all, God wants us to you know, do our own thing. I think that there's a lot that we're in control of our own lives. And then you get the super crazy Christians that it's like, well, God will provide for me. Well, he provides you the the way to do things for yourself. Um, you know, that's what we would do as a parent. You know, it's like, I'm not going to go buy my kid, you know, um, you know, master's degree, you know, but I'll, I'll help pay for you to go to college to do that for yourself. Um, and I think that if you break down religions, they all have very similar teachings in different ways. And, if you was to take them all and I guess build some super religion or whatever, there's some very good stuff in there. The problem is, is the people that just get so fanatical about it of my God's better than your God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't believe in the right religion and who cares, you know, learn to just be a good person. Yeah. At the end of the day, yeah. if you're a good person, then you act like a Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're being a complete ass, and saying you're a Christian, well, that's an oxymoron. Yeah, and that's the problem is that those texts were written thousands of years ago, sometimes by people that were not around, you know, right. recounted years later through a series of telephone conversations. Uh, sometimes documents were lost, um, they would get retranslated. Like, what came down is not meant to be taken literally. Right. It's supposed to be a general idea of don't be an asshole, be kind, love, and then, I mean, really the only other aspect is what happens when you die. 
that's what changes amongst most of them, right? Is they have different ideas of what happens when you die. And so that is the thing I think that most people ascribe to or what they get so uh, fanatical about is because most people that are religious, they think this is temporary and that that is final. Right. And so what you do here can, can affect what happens in that final place. But um, I think... I think it'd be better if more people just focused on this. Oh, absolutely. You know this is happening right now. You this, don't know what happens later. That's that it's kind of like the whole COVID thing right now. We don't know. Yeah. You know, we could guess all day long, but we don't know. I mean, you know, as far as the only thing we know for sure that happens when we die is that we become become worm food. Mm -hmm. Um but we have right now. And you know, it's and I think too many people get caught up in the um the idea of, well, when things get to a different part, then I will be happy. Then things will be better for me. Uh, you know, this life sucks, but, you know, it'd be better for me when I die. I'm, uh, you know, on God's side. Well, we don't know. All we have is right now. And unless you can figure out how to make right now um, where you want to be, and it's interesting because there's a book that I read, um, The Power of Now. Mm -hmm. And it's all about you don't have the past. The past is already gone. You don't have the future. It's not here yet. You have right now in this moment. Mm -hmm. And how do you live in the moment and appreciate what you have? And it's like nothing else matters. Um, you know, work doesn't matter right now. Um, you know, the protests going on downtown doesn't matter right now. Mm -hmm. I'm hanging out with my friend, you know, BSing, you know. That's what we have. That's it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And most people aren't able to, to recognize that for sure. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty ridiculous to, to spend your entire life focused on something that you don't even know will happen. Oh, exactly. Um, and that's where I've always struggled with the whole religious thing is I'm a see it to believe it kind of guy. Mm -hmm. So that the whole idea of faith is really hard for me. You know, it's like, now if I could see it, then it makes sense to me. Yeah. If, if I just, well, just believe that, you know, there's a monster in the next room, uh, I could peek over there to see <laughs> yeah. it, you know, okay, yeah. then I, that I'd believe it, but yeah. to just, you know, have blind faith. And, mm -hmm. and that's where I think that I had such a hard time growing up. Um, you know, I was raised Mormon and it's like, well, you need to have faith. Well, but I don't. So <laughs> help, well, help don't. me understand that. Well, you just need to have faith. Well, that's not answering the question. You know, how do I get faith when I'm, I'm questioning things and mm -hmm. it's like, as an intellectual, I question things, yeah. you know, why is this do this? You know, why, you know, and especially with the production side of things, I got to understand how equipment works to be able to understand how to troubleshoot it. Mm -hmm. So I got to understand how this whole faith thing works to be able to put it in my own life. And if it's like, well, just don't question it. You just need to believe. Oh, that doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's a little too simple. 
Well, and Mormonism is even tougher to believe, right? Based on on the story of how it came to be and how it was only since you know, like it's, 1850, 1860, something like that. So it's it's a fairly new religion yeah. when you look at religions. Yeah. Um, and that's where I had a hard time. Well, it's weird because I grew up hearing all the stories, you know, my whole life. And, um, but then it's like, I got to a point where it's like, some of this doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so it's like, then I start questioning, well, you need to just not question it. And, but then it's like, to me, it was so boring and so monotonous and my mom was mean and it's like, you know, there's 10 of us at church, you know, and it's like, you shut up and you don't make any noise or you're going to get your ass beat when we get, that's not being a good Christian mom, <laughs> you know? And it's like, there's, there was so much hypocrisy in there that I really started questioning things. And then I got away from it and it's like, then I really kind of analyzed it and it's like, it's, it's more like a club, you know? And it's like, if you're not, a member of us, then, you know, you're against us. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't really buy into the, the you versus us mentality. And then I ended up finding this other church and phenomenal pastor, mm -hmm. just a great guy. And, um, he, we'd go out to lunch every once in a while. And I'm like, you know, I struggle with faith. And he goes, I do too. He goes, yeah. and I'm not the pastor. He goes, that's okay. You got to work through it the way that you need to. And it's like, that is being a true leader. Yeah. And, and it's like, well, how do I know if I'm, you know, kind of part of you? Well, do you believe in God? Do you, you know, uh, you know, we're not going to kick you out because you sin, yeah. you know, everybody sins, everybody has their flaws and why not be accepting of people as they are? And cause we all screw up, we all make mistakes and we all do some good things too. And I'm definitely an enigma of an extreme, mm -hmm. you know, I'll go from just being a completely nice person to just complete asshole. And, and I'm everywhere in between. It just kind of depends on my day. Mm -hmm. Um, doesn't mean that I'm a horrible person. Doesn't mean that I'm a great person. Yeah. You know, I'm human. You're, you're human and you're working through it. And the coolest part is that you're able to admit it. The people that, just refuse to say they make mistakes or that they screwed up or they're lying to themselves. Yeah, man, that is, that is the hardest quality in a person to deal with the one who will not accept fault or blame or anything. It's like, dude, everyone has screwed up. Right. Just take it and put your tail between your legs and apologize and let's move on. Like yep. it happens. Well, it's, it's interesting because like, like my mom, I mean, she must be in her early seventies now. Every issue she has is somebody else's fault, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, she can't live in an apartment complex without having, without having an issue with one of her neighbors within 30 days. Yeah. And it's always their fault. And it's like, look at the pattern, you know, who's <laughs> the common denominator. Yeah. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it's like kind of kind of take responsibility for where you screwed up, you know? And it's like, and I've had to do that too. You know, it's like, I've, I haven't had my kid in my life for, you know, quite a long time. And there's some issues that were out of my control and there were some mistakes that I've made and I've, I have to be accepting that I've made mistakes mm -hmm. and that 
the way everything went down and how long it's been since I've seen her, I don't think is a fair situation, but I know that I also had a part to play in it too. Yeah. So I got to take responsibility for that and grow from it. Yeah. And that's cool that you, that you are and that you do. It's unfortunate that you've missed that time uh, because kids don't understand time. No. I didn't understand time until like three, four, five years ago. And I still probably don't. In 20 years, I'll probably be like, what? I was an idiot, dude. What was going on? (laughs) Uh, But when you're that young, you don't, you don't recognize how important everything is. Just like the interactions you have with people and the time you spend with them. Cause you never know. I mean, when you showed up today, like what I said, I don't know what the last time I saw you, it could have been not counting a couple of those little shows we did. Uh, dude, it could have been like four years. I don't even know. Yeah. You never know. Like maybe this is the last time I see you for another five years. I don't know. You can't, you can't just take that stuff for granted. And when you're, when you're 15 years old and that's where it's hard to see, dude, you don't understand. And that's where I think because I went through the same thing. I didn't see my dad. Um, my parents got divorced when I was 12 and, you know, I'd see my dad like a week or two every summer. Um, and then my mom kicked me out halfway through my senior year and I went to live with dad. I didn't even really know the guy. Yeah. Um, because we didn't spend that time together. Um, which I'm glad that we had that time because that's when I really got to know him and we started building a relationship then, you know, I was what, 33 when he died. Um, so it's like, we didn't really have that much time together. And, and that's where it's, I, I think part of my issue is it's like a really push for my daughter to be in my life because it's like, I, you don't know when I'm going to go, you know, you don't know how much time I have here, you know, make the best of it. And it's like, well, I just want nothing to do with you now. Well, I got to understand where she's at in this process and she's got to do things at at her own speed. Um, Who knows, you know, it may be a situation where, you know, we were able to mend our relationship, you know, in the next year, it could be another 10 years. I don't know, but it's, she's got to do it at her process and she's got to work through her issues the same that I got to work through mine. And I just have to, be in the right mental spot to be emotionally available when she does. Yeah. And I, and I understand where she's at because I've been through it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just hard because it's like, I see where the end was for me and I don't want her to, to go through that. Yeah. Cause me and my dad are exactly the same, you know, he was, he was an asshole, <laughs> um, you know, and we were, we're very stubborn mm-hmm. and very opinionated and we didn't get along. And I had a lot of guilt for a lot of years because, you know, I fought with my dad the last few years that he was alive and I wish that I could spend some time with him now. Yeah. And I wish that I could show my daughter how I feel on that situation so that she would want to fix our relationship, but she's got to, 
she's got to want to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's, she's 19, you know, she's still figuring out what it's like to be an adult and, yeah. you know, her place in this world. And yeah, I got to get put kind of put on the back burner right now. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, I just want her to be happy and a well-rounded person. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and so do you feel that maybe she's a bit like you too? in that sense that she's pretty stubborn and oh yeah yeah oh absolutely yeah i mean there's there's been so much of her that which is was kind of scary at some aspects too is that i've seen so much of myself in her and you know it's like when i was younger i had a lot of anger issues and i saw that in her you know when she was really young and it's like scared the crap out of me because it's caused a lot of issues in my life and so I've worked with her to curb those, um, you know, whether it's stuck or not, I don't know, but it's like, all I can do, all you can ever do as a parent is just give your own experiences and tell your kids how things have affected you and things that you've learned along this experience. So hopefully they don't go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have to, you know, it's like, I remember going out to lunch with my uncle and my dad and my cousin was there. My uncle was like this dumb kid. I tell him all the time what he needs to do. And he's just (laughs) stupid. He's like, I got to make a mistake myself or I'm going to learn. Yeah. And we have to go through our own experiences. Yeah. No, that's totally true. And when you are, at least from my experience, when you are in that age group, you think you're awesome. You think you got it figured out. You think, all those old people are just trying to give me advice. I don't care what they're saying. They don't know nothing. They don't know nothing. <laughs> and then you get to that point and you're like, wow, man, they were right. Oh, the older I get, the more I think I, I've realized I don't know. Yeah. You know, well, I dude, thought I knew everything at 18 and that, I don't know nothing. That is the craziest thing about growing older is that, I mean, when I was younger, I always put like, some sort of experience or achievement at different age levels. Like, oh, by the time you're 30, you're married and you own a house or whatever. By the time you're 40, you got a sports car or whatever. Like 50, you're getting ready to retire. Like there's all these different milestones you're supposed to hit. And you think, you think that you have it figured out. Like every person that's 26 or older has everything figured out unless they're total screw up. No one ever figures it out ever. I, I mean, you could, you could be uh, a 23-year-old running a company and things are going great, or you could be an 85-year-old who's getting a divorce and you've been married for 40 years. Like, right. you have no idea what's going to happen ever. Nope. You're always just rolling with it and trying to do the right thing. And that's where I think a lot of it comes down to um, self-awareness. And, you know, seeing where you're at, not where, and I've, and I've never really been the kind of guy about what society wants. You know, I'm not going to get buried by, you know, a certain age or, you know, have so many kids. And I never wanted to get, get married or have kids because I was so affected by my parents' divorce. Mm -hmm. It scared the crap out of me. Well, then I ended up having this kid and it's like, then the lawyers kind of scared me. 
out of ever having any more. <laughs> um, you know, I'm 48 years old. I've never been married. Mm -hmm. And because I'm still waiting for the right one. Do you, do you think you'll get married? Like, would you, if, if I would, yeah, if, if I found the, the right person, mm -hmm. um, you know, that it's like, this is, this is the one yeah. I totally would, but I, I'm not just going to jump into something and, you know, and hope it works because I've kind of been down that road, you know, with like my daughter's mom and stuff. It's like, you know, we were together for seven and a half years and it wasn't working by the first year, you know. Do you think she wanted to get married and she was resentful to you because you didn't? I don't know. You don't know? Um, you know, it would be interesting to kind of be a fly on the wall to just find out exactly why she's so angry. Because mm -hmm. we didn't have a perfect relationship by any means. Yeah. But, you know, I've also seen other relationships that were so much worse. And it's then that's where I'm like, well, what happened? Yeah. Um, you know, but everybody's got their breaking point. Yeah. And, you know, hers was whatever it was. And... Um, and that's fine. You know, she's got married, got married, you know, has another kid mm -hmm. and, and I'm happy for her. Why is she still mad at me? Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't even seen her, you know, other than in a courtroom in 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's not, I know some bitter people in my life too. And I don't. Well, it's like my mom. It's not uh, worth you holding know, on to it. My dad, uh. They were divorced 20 years when he passed away. And that was 2004. She hates that man to this day with every ounce of her being. And it's like, that's over 35 years of hating somebody you're not even with. That's so just, much hate. It's like, wow. Uh, I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, that's just a, that's just mental illness as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's like at some point, get over it, yeah. you know, suck it up. It was an experience, you know, and it's like, and I, and I think that's where I try to look at things in my life is it's like, cause there's been some bad stuff at, but it was all an experience, yeah. you know, it's made me the person that I am today. Um, which some could say that's good. Some could say that's not, <laughs> you know, it just depends on which side of the fence you're on, <laughs> um, you know, but it's like, I've, I've learned a lot and I've changed a lot and I've, I look at the person that I was at 18 and I'm completely different and I'm more at peace with myself. That's really what matters. Yeah. So, um, but I've never really been that person that cares about, well, you need to, well, no, I'm not gonna, you know, cause I'm just like my dad. I'm a, I'm a rebel. You're going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I remember at a shop, uh, he got a letter from the city and they're like, the concrete or the sidewalk is all broken up. You need to fix that. Fuck those guys. They ain't telling me what to do. I did. He went on for forever. They ain't going to tell me what to do. Screw those guys. So the city came out and fixed it. Sent him a bill for 1500 bucks. It's like, <laughs> so how's that rebellion working for you? <laughs> but I, you know, that's how I've always been. You know, it's like, I don't, I'm not the kind that wants to be like the Joneses. I, I've kind of lived my life like I'm going through midlife crisis. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you figure that out as you go along. You, I don't know. There, there are things that happen 
No matter how high you get, something can happen to bring you back down. You can get fired from your job. Your girlfriend can break up with you. Like the peak is always really good, but the, the valley's coming at some oh, point. Absolutely. I don't know anybody that just keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. And that's the other thing is like, you don't know. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot you build in your mind of what other people's lives are like. There's so many people I know where you think they have a perfect relationship with their, their spouse or whatever. And then you find out out of nowhere that they hate each other and they're getting divorced. You're just like, well, you don't know what goes on. No, you don't know anything. No. And so that's, that's part of being a human and trying to figure everything out is understanding that you usually don't know what someone else is going through. Right. Yeah. Everybody's got their own struggles, you know, and some of them keep, keep theirs on the surface and some of people keep them deep down inside. And the ones that usually keep it deep down inside are the ones that are the most self-destructive, you know, that end up expressing them in destructive ways. You know, those are the ones that are committing suicide. Those are the ones that are, you know, struggling with drug addictions and stuff like that because they, haven't dealt with their emotions and issues on the surface. So they just keep stuffing it down to, you know, put on a facade. Yeah. And that never works out either. Um, and that's where I think that it's like, you know, I am who I am, you know, and it took me a long time to get that way. Cause it's like, I wasn't really popular in school. So it's like, you know, after I got out of high school, it's like, you know, I want people to like me and I want to be accepted. And um, so it's like I'm pushing for that acceptance from everybody and, um, you know, then feeling down because I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, now it's like I'm to the point where it's like I am who I am, you know, and some people absolutely love me the way that I am. Some people hate me mm-hmm. and I'm OK with either way. <laughs> Yeah, you reach a point where you you accept who you are and I mean you know you're doing your best and you you're you're trying to uh make positive influences on people's lives and right. if people take it the wrong way then they're dealing with something else. That's right. on them. And some people just can't deal with any kind of conflict. Yeah. You know, and and I think that was kind of the biggest thing with my daughter's mom is it's like let's sit down and talk about this. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk to you. Well, of course, we're not going to get anything figured out if we don't talk. I mean, that's kind of basic communication <laughs> yeah. as far as I'm concerned. That's where you start. Um, well, no, we got to have, we got to talk to our lawyers and then have them talk to each other. And it's like, that just doesn't work, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I've spent thousands and thousands yeah, of dollars. Yeah, it's an expensive way of talking. And it's like, let's just be adults. You know, I don't care if, if we got to go out back and just scream at each other and get it out, let's just get it out and put our cards on the table. Here's where I'm at. Here's where you're at. And it doesn't mean that we have to be together. We have to even like each other, but let's kind of figure out the, the common goal. And that's our daughter's happiness. And, and it's really sad that it had, that wasn't the main focus, you know, on both sides. I've screwed up. 
on that as well and you know let my anger get out of control and the 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 insane thing is that through thousands and thousands of years in human evolution you from the time you're like 15 to 22 your hormones are insane and all you want to do is get everybody pregnant like that's that's the only thing that you're thinking about you know and your brains are not even done developing yet and so you're making these connections with someone else and you're both retarded you don't know what you're doing so you're you're hanging out and uh getting married and making babies doing all the shit Dude, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. Oh, absolutely. I don't know how anybody who had, who met like at that age and stayed together, I don't know how that happens. I think it, well, I think it really takes, and I don't think it really matters at what age, it takes two people that are willing to go, I'm in this to win it. And, you know, we're going to fight, we're going to struggle, and I'm still going to stick this out and we're going to make this work. But it takes both people involved at that level. And the problem is, is that it's usually one or the other yeah, or neither. And then you get to the point where you're just fighting all the time and, but it's exciting. And so then yeah. you get involved in that, um, that habit of fighting. And that's how you keep excitement in your world of, you know, by just having constant conflict and then you give up and you finally go on, well, then you've got all this baggage that you take to the next one Mm -hmm. and the next one. And then it's like, so you have all these people that have been through retarded relationships that never dealt with their problems, learned how to communicate, learned how to um, deal with conflict, that they just take those issues to the next one and, you know, leave a bit, little bit more baggage behind. Yeah. And so then by the time, you know, you hit your forties, everybody's screwed up. <laughs> you got three kids with three different ladies. Oh yeah. You still don't know what's going on. And you know, and, and some of them still are looking for that 20 year old love. Yeah. And it's like, Yes, we all want that 20-year-old love. It was innocent. It was sweet. It was pure. But it, like you said, it's a recipe for disaster. So it's like you got to have something a little more intellectual that is like, we're going to fight. We're going to have issues. How do we deal with those problems? Um, you know, where are we at money-wise? Um, you know, um, I'm a penny pincher and you're just blowing money. Mm-hmm probably not going to work out real well, you know, unless you can figure out how to find that happy medium. And I think that most people go into a relationship with a preconceived notion. And this is what I expect from you. Now you need to figure it out. I'm not going to tell you, you just need to know what I need. Well, nobody's a mind reader and no. that's why you see divorce rates and you see people breaking up all the time. Yeah. And then especially now, You've got people stuck in the house with people they have just been dealing with and passing to just get to work. And it's like, okay, cool. Now I don't have to deal with them. And then now they're stuck with this person that they really haven't gotten to know. And it's going to go one of two ways. Either they're really going to work on their relationships or they're done. And they're already seeing divorce rates skyrocket. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is <laughs> this is a great time for that. <laughs> Figuring out whether or not the one you're with is the one you should be with. Right. Yeah, because. But it, it. But why would you? Why would you want to stay with somebody that? And that's the question I've always had. Is it's like, why would you want to be with somebody and spend your life with them if they're not causing happiness in your life? I think some people just give up. Well, and I think you settle and you, you, it's easier. You get a habit, um, you know, and you go through so many bad relationships and it's like, well, at least they're not as bad as so-and-so. At least it's not as bad as it was in the past. You know, this is better than I've had and you settle, but is that really happiness? No. And that's where it's, I think people need to do a lot of soul searching and go, is this what I want? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of like, uh, kind of like the movie. Is this as good as it gets? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's gotta be something better, Yeah. you know? And if it's, if you don't have what you want, go, you know? And, yeah. and I, it's weird because it's like, I, you know, I'm in the middle of 10 kids. There was always noise. There was always people around and, the hardest thing for me was to learn how to be by myself and deal with my own thoughts and um, be comfortable in that. It took a long time. And now it's just like, I like where I'm at. Mm -hmm. You know, I got my little house, you know, I got my cat that yells at me when I get home. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I set something on the counter. It's still there when I come back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's pros and cons. I mean, I've been living living alone for it's almost two years now and there's there's good things you know like what you're saying yeah. you just do what you want you you leave this thing over there it's going to be there right. you move that thing over there whatever you, you make whatever you want for dinner every night um i'm gonna have beer for dinner <laughs> <laughs> i had that last night that's all right but yeah dude the um i don't know it's the human interaction and that's like that's what you have to, to balance in your mind. What's better? Putting up with someone that drives you crazy and having a human there with you or being alone. And I think that's why so many people are mm -hmm. terrified to walk away from whatever they have is they're like, well, this sucks, but it's better than being alone. Which is untrue. I mean, when you really look at it, yeah. it's just that they haven't learned how to live with themselves mm -hmm. and you got to learn how to live with yourself before you can live with somebody else. Yeah. You got to learn how to be happy with yourself. And I think that's the other issue is it's like, well, I'm not happy because I'm alone. I need somebody else to make me happy. Yeah. Well, so that's why are you putting thing. so much pressure onto somebody else yeah. for your happiness? Figure it out yourself. What, why am I not happy? Okay. Well, let's start there. Um, you know, why is it not okay to just be at peace with yourself? What is the issue causing that? And that's where you start. And, you know, if, as, but I think it's a double-edged sword because it's like, I've been alone so long and I'm comfortable with it. And, you know, then it's like, if I had somebody come into my world now, it's like, okay, 
this is too slow much. down slow down slow down but you know keep keep your suitcase by the door uh, you know <laughs> this is just going too fast for me because it, i've had my way for so long yeah. and i've and it's weird because it's like yeah i don't just don't understand how you know people can just be you know by themselves and you know end up just stuck in their ways I do now. <laughs> I'm stuck in my ways. And, and it, I think it's it would be hard to f- be compatible with somebody coming in and changing my world. But that's where it comes down to that communication. That comes down to that compromise. And it's like, okay, well, this is hard for me. Um, you know, it's easy for you. Well, how do we make this work? You know, um, here's a non-negotiable thing. This I'm willing to kind of flex on. Um, where do you find that that balance? Yeah, um, and that's where I I still hold hope that there is a possibility for that. If not, you know, I'm okay. You know, I I like working. Um, I think I I'm hard to deal with in a relationship because I do work all the time, mm-hmm. and I like working, and I'm always hustling and even like I talked to my cousin the other day and she goes, well, you know, you're just as busy as you was before this all started. I'm like, yeah, I'm just not making any money now, <laughs> but I'm always staying busy. Cause I like being productive. Yeah. And, and that's me. I need to find somebody that can be understanding of that. And there's not a lot. Yeah. Somebody that uh, kind of has their own life going and doesn't need you. Right. But is there to hang out with you when, when you're around. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's the older I get, I think there's different periods in your life, male and female, where you expect certain things and you get certain things. And as you get older, you kind of reevaluate them and you're like, you know what? I can't expect this other person to do that. I'm not even going to do that. So, and then, you know, as you get older, it's like, this is what you're asking for. I want to go work and not hear a bunch of shit from you. Right. When I come home, I want to hang out with you and everything can be cool. Yeah. Yeah. But who knows, you know, by the time I'm 60, I might be just like, shit, I need somebody around and make sure that, you know, they can call the hospital when I fall. <laughs> what do you got on your speed dial? <laughs> Is it not one? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the only, uh, you know what? I kind of joke about it, but it's like. You know, well, what would happen if I died? You know, the cat would have me half eaten by the time anybody found me. <laughs> the cat would be stoked. <laughs> just waiting for He's that just to happen. just standing on my chest. Mow! Mow! <laughs> feed me! <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, the other thing I want to ask you about uh, is when you own the club. That was, that was an interesting adventure. <laughs> that was, that was crazy, man. You, yeah. you did, did you, did you actually purchase it or did you? So here's what happened is, uh, so I was in a band and we were scheduled to book, to do a show at Mount Tabor Theater. And, um, so the guy that was booking it, he goes, Hey, uh, just want to let you know the, the owner's talking about just closing the doors and file bankruptcy. And I'm like, Oh, well that sucks. And so then he kept calling me and he's like, well, you know, they're spending, I think like $800 a month for the sound system. You know, is that a good price? I'm like, yeah. 
well, they're paying the, you know, the sound guy like a hundred bucks a night. You know, I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, basically we're working out a deal with the owner that she walks away and we just assume all the liability. And, uh, but we're kind of looking for another partner and because our credit sucks and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, let me look at the financials and stuff and see if it makes sense. And, you know, I've had, had my business for a long time and, you know, worked in clubs and, you know, kind of knew a lot of the risks. Um, and honestly, I was just like, screw it. What the hell do we got to lose? And, you know, worst case scenario, I finally got enough debt to justify a file of bankruptcy. So <laughs> let's just try it. And so you didn't you didn't put any money down. Up front. I think we put, you just enter to an agreement. I think we end up putting like a thousand dollars down. Damn. Yeah, and that's we, pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Um, but then it's like we open the doors for the first night, and it's like we're reaching into our pockets. All right, how do what do we got to start a till? We had like thirty bucks, <laughs> you know. So it's like we're making sales, running next door, getting change. And I mean, it was just grassroots, yeah. but it's like, you know, him and his girlfriend or whatever, they were um, both booking and promotion and stuff. You know, I'm a sound guy. It's like, oh, we know so many people in the business. This mm-hmm. should just be. And our first weekend was crap. We didn't make any money. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, this tells us one thing. We can't rest on what we've done in the past, we got to actually get to work. Well, and that's, that's pretty crazy too. Cause your location was great. It's like what? 45th and Hawthorne. Yeah. So yeah. And, but the thing is, is you had that long hallway, so you couldn't see it from the street. And so it was kind of, you couldn't tell whether there's two people in there or 200 people. Yeah. Um, so it's like, we, we had to just kind of, figure out how to actually run a club, you know, instead of just resting on what we did. Well, then not even a month into it, um, I went to work one morning and front doors padlock shut. So I called Phil, the building owner, and I'm like, hey, what's up? He goes, your rent check bounced. I'm like, really? Let me, uh, let me do a little research on this. So then I found out that my partners were cleaning the tills out every night, writing checks for the bills. No money made it to the bank. We're $30,000 overdrawn. I'm like, uh, I, <laughs> I don't even know how to react to this. And they, so they were asking you to write the checks from an account that you thought had money in it and they were never depositing the money in the account. Correct. That was inevitable. Yeah. So, um, I basically ended up finding, uh, another investor to kind of come in and, you know, help us get back open. And so I went to them and I'm like, all right, here's the deal. You got what you got. Uh, either you sign over your part of the company to me or I'll get a lawyer and have you indicted for embezzlement. Oh, here, here you go. So next thing I know, you know, they signed over their part of the club to me. And I'm like, well, that was dumb on my end. Now I'm sole owner of this club. Um, for a thousand dollars down. Yeah, but I mean, our minimum costs were between twenty to twenty twenty five thousand a month, and it's like that's about what I was making a year. So it's it was hard to. So you had to essentially make a thousand dollars a day to just keep the lights on, pretty much. And what were you making 
I remember you telling me the, the, the biggest seller obviously was the booze, right? Oh, yeah. So how much were you making in alcohol sales a day? It depended on the day. Yeah. Um, you know, so like a karaoke night, you know, we're making like 500 bucks, you know. Um, but you got to make $1,000 a day. Right. So, but then like Saturday, you know, we do like a big hip hop night. We're doing 3,500 bucks. Uh, okay. okay. Well, then it all kind of balances. And just because I'm innately cheap, you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm the one going in in the mornings and mopping the floors and, you know. I yeah, you were doing like 18-hour days. Oh, yeah. It was insane. Um, and then um, there was it was so much going on. And, you know, and, and even like my bartenders, I'm like, I can't afford to pay you anything. But I'll try to book as good a shows as you can so that, you know, you can make tips. Mm -hmm. And it's like. I hated to ask them to do that, but it's yeah. like, you know, then they're walking out with three, $400 in tips. It's like, all right, cool. Um, so it's like, it really was kind of, it was a group effort. I couldn't have done it by myself. There's just no way. Yeah. And um, so it took me about six months and then we were back in black again. Um, well, it was kind of back up when I got back into the building. I basically called all the, um, all the vendors and stuff because we owed them a shit ton of money. And I'm like, here's what happened. Um, if you can kind of work with me, I'm going to do my best to get you paid. And um, if you don't, I understand. And, you know, I got to close the doors. All of them were like, yeah, do what you got to do. We'll work with you. And so, yeah, it took me about six months till we were kind of back in black again. Started making some money. And um, then I had this guy come in and he goes, oh, I want to buy the bar from you. I'm like put 50,000 in my pocket and you know, you assume the liability I'm out. He goes, cool. I have my lawyer come talk to you Monday. I'm like, hell yeah. So then his lawyer came and talked to me. He goes, well, I think that that's a little much, but uh, you know, maybe if we stretch it out over 10 years, I, I don't care. I I'm working 18 hour days, seven days a week. I'm tired. I want to go spend some time with my kid. I want to do something other than this. It owning a club sounds amazing, but it's a lot of work. And I learned enough from it that I don't want to do it again. <laughs> and so he had his lawyer come talk to me. And so we end up working out a deal and it's like, well, we're going to seal the deal on this date. Then about a week before, oh, we're going to push it out another month. What? Okay. So now I got a week to book out the next month. Yeah. What the shit? And so the second time he did that, I'm like, you don't talk to me. You did it. You're done wasting my time. Until you put down 30,000 cash in front of me, um, we're done talking. So then they went to the guys that originally owned it as Mount Tabor because there was a $150,000 loan for the equipment, which it wasn't worth that. But the problem was, was that it had been deferred from so many previous owners that it was never repaid on. So it just kept accruing interest. So it was a $150,000 loan. And you were never paying it? Oh, I was kind of paying on it, you know, yeah. where I could. Yeah. And so they came to me and they're like, well, you know, we're kind of losing faith that you're going to be able to get caught up, let alone stay current. So what if we made that loan disappear and we take the club back over? Oh, I'm like, screw you. I'll bust my ass to get this thing going again. Yeah. Wait. So I just walk out of here, no liability. Yeah. Write it up. I'm out. <laughs> I, I went and cleaned the safe out. I had like 9,500 bucks in the safe and I took off. 
Wow. And uh, I never heard that before. That's cool. <laughs> well, what? The, why didn't the guy? Why did he keep bailing on the the fifty thousand dollar buyout? I don't know. I um, think he was just he couldn't get the money together or something. Well, so here's the weird thing. So the guy that wanted to buy it, uh, from what I understand, he his family is all lawyers over in New York. He ended up coming into the thing with about um, with about a half million dollars. So I think the money was there. Um, I think that he was just screwing around and, you know, trying to figure out a way to weasel his way in. Yeah, dude, 50 grand is not that much to somebody that has a lot of money. Right. So here's the funny thing is that, so after I left, they're, they're the ones that turned it into Alhambra. And, uh, so they were basically booking like hippie bands and stuff. And he was there for, I think, two and a half years. From what I understand, um, when he ended up getting kicked out, he ended up owing three quarters of a million dollars between vendors and employees. Wow. And it's like, you can't owe somebody making 10 bucks an hour, 3,000 bucks. Yeah. You can't do that. No. And uh, a couple of years later, uh, they found him dead in a hotel room in Singapore. Really? And it's like, he got killed or he OD'd or something. Who knows? Um, you know, but it's like, and he still owes those people that money. Yeah. But you know, obviously they're not going to get paid, yeah. but you know, it's like whether somebody caught up to him or karma caught up to him or whatever, you just can't do that. I mean, it's like I was paying everybody cash at the end of the night when I had it, because it's like, I don't know if I'm going to get shut down tomorrow. Mm -hmm. This is my risk. You're, doing me a favor by working for me you deserve to get paid so i'm making sure you get paid at the end of the night because if everything goes sideways it's just, it's all on me not you i mean if you do your job you deserve to get paid and i've always tried to stick by that even with the sound company dude when i would do shows for you 15 years ago or whatever you would pay me before you got paid by them yeah yeah that's really cool. And I've, and I've done that. I've, you would assume the risk. It's my business. Yeah. You know, it's, People it's not on you. It's cool. And there's been times where, you know, I'm waiting on money and I'll go work another gig so that I can pay somebody Yeah. because, well, it's my business. I'm the one that should take the risk. Mm -hmm. You know, they already did the job. They deserve to get paid. And I don't know. It's, it's just one of those things that I think is show somebody's character. And I think that's kind of a lost art, yeah. you know, of having a good character. And that's, and I struggle with that sometimes, you know, there's sometimes where it's like, man, I just don't have the money to pay this guy right now. I got to wait, you know, until I get this check and, you know, 40 days, sorry, bro. Yeah. You know, but it's like, I try to do what I can to stay up on it because at the end of the day, it's my business. It's my risk. You know, it's my vision. So it's, they're not, they have no interest in my business. So, yeah. but they're helping me build it. So it, that's where it's a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. with a business and an, and an employee or freelancer or whatever. And, and, and I think that a lot of people don't really get that. It's just like, well, you're just another number. Well, 
I think by doing little stuff like that, to to me, it's like if I got to go work, well, I'm still collecting that check in 60 days or whatever. So I'm still going to get paid for it. It's just I've I've got to work to make sure they get paid now. And it just it shows class. Yeah, I agree. Most people don't do it that way. So, no, it's cool. Especially when you're not, at that point in time, you weren't making that much money. But you still were not. still. <laughs> <laughs> None of us are. I mean, you None know, and, and that's where, you know, it's like you hope that you build a business that, you know, you can just have this phenomenal bank account with, you know, savings that, you know, if anything goes sideways, that you're going to be okay. Well, okay, I've had the business for, what, 16 years. And to make sure that things don't go sideways, I'm working a minimum wage job. Yeah. Well, obviously, it didn't get to the point where I wanted it to. And, you know, I've probably made some bad investments. But I've also kind of lived of whatever I make. You know, I pay my bills. And then I invest more in the business. And I invest more in the business. And, you know, I on the other side, it's like, I could work a minimum wage job and be okay to sustain what I already have versus what would happen if I had $2,500 lease payment on some gear. Um, I'd be completely screwed right now. So I've grown it slower than I probably could have, but I've also played it safer too. Yeah, and you're not going to go out of business. I mean, no. if you have all your stuff paid off, it's just collecting dust. It's oh, exactly. not like you owe anybody money. Well, it's it's just storage at this point. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's not like, you know, I've got, I, I was reading a thing like back in March uh, on some AV forum and this guy was like, yeah, we're good for now, but we got a $50,000 gear payment on the first and no income. Yeah. And it's like, that's scary. Yeah, dude. That's, that's when you... You have to sell stuff yeah. or fire people or return your yacht or fucking whatever. If you have a yacht, you know, if, you, <laughs> if, it's, if it's just all the gear. How many yachts do you got? <laughs> Three or four? Yeah, maybe Matchbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude, I remember back in the day, I would text you right after you bought the club and I'd be like, hey, what? Rich, what's going on? Who, who's playing tonight? And I never cared who was playing. We just right. wanted to come to your club and hang out. Right. And I'd be like, do they got a cover? And you'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and I go, well, can you get us in? Because you own the club. Right. And you're like, I'll get you in, but you guys better buy a lot of booze. <laughs> <laughs> so I, That's where I, I was making my money. <laughs> I'd bring all my friends. And I'd be like, yeah, we don't have to pay the cover. I know the guy. <laughs> so we'd get right in and just go out to the bar. Yeah, it was cool. It was cool. Well, that's where it's so funny that some clubs are such sticklers on cover charges because it's like if you just let more people in and you're making it at the bar, well, then it makes sense. Because um, I remember like when I booked Stephen Piercy from Rat, um, it was a it was a twenty five hundred dollar guarantee, and I'm like, man. It's a lot of money. So I ended up just saving money from all these gigs and I had it in my safe. So as soon as he walked in, here's your money. He grabbed it, put it in his boot. Thank you, man. I love the way you do business. Let's have a good show. And um, that, it was on a Thursday. That Monday I called and I'm like, hey, how many pre-sales do we have? Nine. 
okay, I pre-sold nine tickets for a show this Thursday. I'm like, all right, print me out 300 tickets. So I went around to like all these businesses. Hey, just want to invite you to come out to the show. And uh, by the time it was said and done, I think we made 900 at the door. And I did 3,500 in liquor sales. And it's like, yeah, it's a wash. It's a wash. Well, and it made it look good to him yeah. because there were 300 people in the crowd as opposed to nine. Right. Yeah. And, and to me, it's like, it was, it was a wash financially, but it was awesome because Rat was the first band that I ever saw live. Yeah. And to kind of see the full thing go full circle to where I'm booking him and he's hanging out in my club and we were hanging out till like seven in the morning, just nice. drinking, talking. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. You got to hang out with oh, him. Yeah. That's cool. And it's like, all right, the experience was worth it. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah, dude, that's what it's about. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you make or, or how many vacation homes in Mexico you got. Like when you die, I mean like, um, who's the Microsoft dude? I'm drawing a blank on his name. He just died recently. Paul Allen. Oh yeah, he owned the Blazers. He owned Cuba. Like who? He owned all kinds of shit, man. Whatever. Right. He died at fifty-seven, fifty-eight, or something. Like, y- you can make as much money possible. Can't, can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. You, you, you. I mean, you can spend it here, but who cares if you're not generating important experiences and hanging out with that's that's all life is is experiences hanging out with the dude that you saw the first time you went to a concert is pretty cool exactly and that's why i think i love this business is because i've worked with so many famous people that i never would have even seen Mm -hmm. otherwise and you know it's been a cool experience it's been a cool ride i've worked some cool shows i've worked some horrible shows too you know, but it's, it's that balance in life. And, um, but I've got to experience things that I never would have sitting in some cubicle at a desk for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. And I'm just not that guy. I, I do not deal well with authority anyways. And, um, I don't do well in the corporate environment. I'm just not that guy. I don't deal well with a consistent schedule as annoying as it is sometimes to not know what you're going to work or whether or not you're working a weekend or whatever. I prefer that over Monday to Friday, nine to five in a cubicle or something. Right. That just, I don't know. It just seems like the weeks would go by and years of your life would disappear and you'd be like, what did I do? I went to the exact same spot every single day typed in the same stuff on the computer. Like, I don't know, man, it doesn't seem it does not you, sound appealing. <laughs> you're not generating any, uh, ex, any, uh, memories. Well, and I think that I struggled with the whole weekend thing for a long time. Cause when I was working for my dad, I was working Monday through Friday. And so I had weekends off and then it's like, I'm in production and, you know, mostly working weekends. And so it's like, then the weekends really didn't, mean anything yeah now it's like well i got a saturday off the hell am i supposed to do what do people do on saturday what is yeah i mean yeah what go to a bar by themselves or do what just stand there and watch the band (laughs) i want to do sound (laughs) when when you and i were working at the museum and we were doing auctions every friday and saturday 
for years. Uh, it made me really disappointed with life because I was mad at people that were coming to the event to hang out and have a good time. And I hated parties yeah, because we were getting paid to be there doing something that we didn't really want to do. And dude, I got so bitter. But the thing is, is that somebody has to be on that side of it. Somebody does. And it's like, but you want to be hanging out, having a good time. Well, of course. But then at the same time, it's like, um, you know, we're doing a show with Martin Short. You know, we're getting paid to listen to Martin Short. <laughs> he he sat us down around that table, and there were probably 10 of us, and he wrote down everybody's name. What's your name? What's your name? He wrote down everybody's name. He gets to you, Rick. Isn't that what he called you? I think so. <laughs> he nailed everybody else's name except yours, and he called you Rick the rest of the time. I'm like, whatever. Uh, there, there's a guy at... Uh, at Amazon. And so they make us wear masks and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were working together and uh, he's like, hey, what's your name? I'm like, I'm Rich. And he's like, oh, cool. Nice to meet you, Chris. <laughs> he's called me Chris for like a month. Yeah. And I'm like, and somebody was like, aren't you going to correct him? I'm like, nah, we're no, I'm just going to let this play gonna, out. <laughs> well, dude, it's the same. Uh, I tell people all the time because it happens all the time about how people mess up my name and they call me Corey, Courtney, Colby. <laughs> and I, I tell everybody, I'm like, Rich doesn't even call me Cody anymore. He just calls me Colby every single time. <laughs> Dude. I don't know. You know what? It's, it's so interesting because it's like, there's some aspects of this business that's just really sucked. And, but it's like, we're not working in cubicles and, we've got to work some pretty cool shows and some cool yeah. events. And, you know, we've lived a different life from the normal people and mm -hmm. it's been kind of awesome, yeah. you know, and I, I feel glad that I've been able to do it. Even if I completely lost my hearing and could never work in production again, I I'm happy for the, the ride that I've had and yeah. you know, the, the cool experiences and even the bad ones, you know, I've learned some shit from. So, yeah. I mean, nothing can prepare you for a failure of a system or somebody freaking out. Uh -huh. Um, dude, when, when I started just everything was new and, you know, seeing, seeing an anchor from KGW or whatever was like, whoa. Right. And now I'm just like, why did I think that was cool? <laughs> right. Like, who gives a shit? Uh, but yeah, what we do is so unique. And I'm not saying that to like brag about it or something, but like whenever I try to explain what I do to people. So you're a DJ. It's so hard. <laughs> you know what I tell them? I say, I, you, have you ever been to a concert? And they're like, yeah, duh. And I'm like, I do the stuff that you're watching. So you're a roadie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, that, that's the only way I can explain it. I'm exactly. like, I do the, the LED wall and the sound and the lighting. And I do all that stuff, but for corporate people. Right. And they still, they're just like, no one knows what that means. It doesn't compute. No. No. And that's where it's such a hard thing because it's like, we're trying to be professionals and we're trying to be the best at our game. And then it's like, well, I got a DJ buddy that can do that too. Yeah. And so it's like, 
you know, I'll send out a quote for like $1,500 for full lights and sound and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's like, and I'm hooking you up. It's like, well, but my DJ buddy, I'll do it for 200 bucks. Yeah. Knock yourself out. Yeah. And, and that's where I think as a business, I've gotten, you know, when I first started, it's just like, well, we need you to bring in a sound system. We got five metal bands and, you know, it pays a hundred bucks. My electric bills do, sure. <laughs> I have to, you know, and now it's like, no. The most important word in business is no, is I don't have to. And it's yeah. like, well, I want you to come do sound for my band. Uh, I personally don't like you. No. <laughs> and I, there's some power in that. Yeah. And I'm so happy I've gotten to that point. And it's, but it's kind of made my happiness better because I'm not doing these horrible gigs and putting in all these hours to you know, make less than a minimum wage. Yeah. And it's like, I look back to when I first started my business and it's like, you know, I've probably got $10,000 worth of gear to make less than a minimum wage. Why didn't I just go to Taco Bell? I yeah. could have at least made minimum wage. Yeah. And, but it was for the experience and to build my resume and to get to that next level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just every step along the way has been closer to the goal that I want to get where that ends up. I don't know. You yeah. know, it, I could be peaking right now. You know, I could end up doing arenas, you know, a few years. I don't know. Well, I mean, you, you did the stint at the museum and then, uh, you branched out and just started doing sound guy full time. And dude, you were, killing it up in Seattle up yeah. until this happened. Right. And yeah. so, well, so what, what I did was, uh, there's, there's an auction company, Stokes auction group. And so I kind of teamed up with them and, um, they do some of their, they do a lot of their own production, but then they also kind of, um, it got to be kind of a weird situation. So sometimes I just go work for them. Sometimes I would just kind of sublet through them. So I would take my own gear and do my own thing. And, but they kind of funneled work through me. And so between doing that and doing summer concerts and, um, you know, whatever corporate gig I could pick up, um, you know, I was able to make it work and it was really scary for me because I've had sound guy productions for, what, 16 years, but I've always played it safe. And so it's like, I've got a job at the convention center or I've got the bar or I've got the art museum. And it's like, that's my main source of income. Sound guy production was kind of a hobby. And, but it's like, I came to the realization that it's like, it's never going to be successful if I don't take that jump. Mm -hmm. And I got to get out of my comfort zone and that was the hard part. Just going, screw it. I'm doing this full time. And it's been almost four years that I've been doing it full time. And it's been cool. And, you know, to see where it's growing. And so like this, and that's the disappointing part is this summer, I already had, I mean, gigs booked out through October. Mm -hmm. And it's last year I had, I think a couple times I had five shows a day. 
And it's, for, a, for a one-man band, that's a lot, dude. Right? Yeah. But, you know, and that's where it comes down to I got to have good people on my team. Yeah. You know, and it's like that's always been the hardest part is finding good labor because yeah. there's people that will work hard. There's people that are talented. Um, and there's people that will, you know, kind of do what's necessary. To find all three in one is kind of hard. And usually if they are, they're working for somebody making really good money. And so to be kind of a a small business and going, hey, look, I can probably pay you like 20 bucks an hour, but, you know, I need you to take care of my client. I need you to kind of, you know, do a good job and I need you to, you know, be positive about it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard. And I've got a couple guys that, you know, are really good right now and I'm able to just Go send them out. and But a lot of it is trust, you know, and that was the hardest thing. You were the first one to do a show for Sour Guy Productions that I wasn't there. And it <laughs> freaked nice. me out. Which one was this? That was, uh, was the one at Esther Short Park. When my nose wouldn't stop yep. running because the allergies. Yep. <laughs> oh, dude, that day was so awful. And so I had to go out to the coast. And then it turns out I had no cell service out there. And that was for the Tibetans. Yeah. 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 And uh, I was freaked out the whole time. I was, I had so much anxiety. Uh, just, that's awesome. Cause it's like, you know, this is my business. It's my reputation. Mm-hmm. And then I finally get back in service and it's like, first phone call. Hey, Cody, how'd it go? I was fine. What? Uh, give me more than that. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Dude, at that show, I had a towel that I was just blowing my nose in like every 20 seconds. <laughs> my allergies were so bad that day. It was brutal. But they were cool. Yeah. That's funny. I did, I'd never heard you say that before. Yeah. That was the first one, huh? That was the first one that uh-huh. I wasn't there. And, you know, basically I just gave 100% trust. Yeah. And. Uh, so you're saying I'm not a total retard? No. <laughs> uh, right. It was. But. I think that if it would have went completely to shit, it would have changed everything because, mm-hmm. because it did work out fine and everything went well. It's like, okay, well I can kind of put trust into other people and I, I don't have to be there for every show. And, and I can't, you know, when I start scaling it out to where I've got five shows in one day, I can't do them all by myself. They're yeah. just physically impossible. Mm-hmm. So I have to rely on other people. Sometimes they do a good job. Sometimes they don't, you know, and that's where as a business owner, it's, it's a lot of damage control. Well, you know, your guy, about, okay, well, here's, let me put you at ease, you know, okay, what happened? How do we fix this thing or whatever? And, you know, it's, there's a certain, there's a certain level. And I don't know this from personal experience. I just know it from evaluating other people, but like there, there's a spot where you're, you're, you have limited employees and you trust everybody and everything's tight. And then you can hit a middle ground where things are still pretty good, but there's a a few bad apples. And then once you cross over that and you're into like Microsoft or Amazon or whatever, like then it's just, you can't control anything anymore. No. So there's, there's a good, there's a good middle ground before you, yeah, you become more successful and you make more money, but dude, then it's just, corporation you yeah know? it's out of your control and yeah. then it's that's where middle management gets involved mm-hmm. and that's where i think a lot of the problems with 
like the Amazons and the Microsofts and the, you know, the huge corporations is, you know, they come up with all these retarded policies um, just as control, yeah. you know? And it's like, I don't think Jeff Bezos gives a shit whether or not I sit on a tote while I'm waiting for something to come down a conveyor belt. Mm -hmm. He probably doesn't care. That was something that was probably brought up by some, you know, middle management kid that, you know, got beat up a lot in school. And it's like, I'm going to make people pay. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, this is how I'm going to get control of my life is, you know, you can't sit on a tote. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, okay. And, but that's where you start getting the lower end of people because it's like, they're just going to come in and do a job. They have no emotional investment mm -hmm. in that whatsoever. They don't care where it's like, I'm at a small business. I got a few people working for me and it's like, they want to do the best job that they can because they want to feel part of this company mm -hmm. because they are part of it. You know, it's like, I couldn't do it without them. And they need to know that um, they're as important to this business as I am. Yeah. And so they have that emotional investment. Yeah, dude, you're going to get better performance out of people when they are emotionally invested because if everybody feels like they can contribute and, and somehow a portion of this thing is theirs, mm -hmm. they're going to do such a better job. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about it earlier when you first got here. Um, every job I had up until I was like 23, I would quit in a heartbeat. I didn't care. I was making $9 an hour. I was just like a cog in the wheel. You know, I didn't give a shit. See, and that's where I think that it was different for me because it's like every job that I went into, I went in 100%. You know, it's like when I was working at Taco Bell, I made the best burritos you've ever seen. Well, no, I will agree with you. When I worked at Quiznos, dude, I made some dank sandwiches <laughs> for sure. Um, so it's like I put a lot of pride into my work no matter what mm -hmm. it was. I'm saying like your investment to the corporation. But yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, did I think that I was going to be, you know, uh, the best burrito roller in the, in the County? <laughs> no. Dude, you ever go to, to Chipotle and some of those, some of those people know what's up and they can roll it right. And then some of the other ones, there's just like stuff flying out all over the place. Yeah. And you're like, man, why don't you, you just new. start over again? <laughs> and uh, then they get a second tortilla and, and it's like, it's not the same. I like it when they put two together, two tortillas, double whammy. So up in Longview, there's this place, Junior's Tacos. They have the best burritos ever. Yeah. And um, it's just a small, you know, family business. And, uh, but yeah, they make these street tacos, like two bucks a piece. Nice. Just amazing. Is and, it a truck or brick and mortar? Uh, so I think that it's like an old Dairy Queen that um okay basically they uh turned it into this taco joint and they have the most amazing tacos uh when i moved up there that was like one of the first places i found and so i was going in there like all the time <laughs> and then you know like auction season hit and you know so i'm gone all the time working and stuff and i come back like a couple months later and I'm like where have you been <laughs> I'm like, You're our number I'm, one customer. I feel at home now. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody missed me. <laughs> and they call you Rick. <laughs> Rick, we missed you so much. <laughs> God damn it, that's not my name. 
Uh, what was it like? What was it like working at Taco Bell? You were you were a manager, weren't you? Yeah, at one point I worked at. Four of them? Four of them? Yeah. On purpose or they made you switch? Well, I worked at, at different times. So like... Um, it wasn't one continuous stretch of Taco Bell employment. No, I don't... Well, I don't think so. Because I think that um, from like 91, after I got out of high school, I ended up working at one on like 120, 24th and Division or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think I was there for about a year. And then me and my girlfriend broke up. I ended up moving to Corvallis with my sister. Ended up working at the Taco Bell there. <laughs> and then I think I ended up coming back up to Portland. Ended up working some other jobs. And then before I went to college, I remember I was working at the one on like 52nd and Powell. And that's where I met my daughter's mom. And I so I was, I yeah. was working there as the night manager. And then I was working at a sawmill during the day. And, uh, yeah, it's, I didn't think I, you know, and I, I can't even remember how many years I've worked there. I mean, it had to have been like five, six years mm -hmm. between all the different ones. And, mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is not what I wanted to be my career move at yeah. all. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's a good it's a good driver to get people to do something else, right? Because, yeah. dude, I worked at Quiznos. I worked at Radio Shack for same thing you're talking about with Taco Bell. I worked there for three years in, like, six different stores. It's, like, it's one of those jobs where you're just, like, this is not this is not what I'm going to do with my life. I got to figure something out. Well, and I think that's where I have a big issue with the, you know, making a minimum wage 15 bucks an hour. And it's, like... Because if then it makes you complacent mm -hmm. and it's like the whole purpose of jobs like that is to kind of get you by, to kind of push you out of the nest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this sucks. I don't want to be doing this when I'm 50. Um, I got to go find a career. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been good while I've been in high school or college or just to kind of get started in the work world, but I want to do better with my life. Yeah. And some of us are slower than others. Obviously, <laughs> I spent so much time at Taco Bell. <laughs> you just really like the food. Did you, did you eat it a lot or were, were you just disgusted with it? Both. Yeah. Because I remember you telling me that the, the beans aren't beans, right? Or no, it was the, the beef isn't beef. It's like powder. No, the, the beans, it comes out like this dried kibble you know kind of like dog food or whatever and then you add water let it sit there for like a half hour and then stir it up <laughs> stir it up a couple times oh man it's that like stuff is disgusting yeah but but it's got we all know that that is the best thing when you're drunk <laughs> oh, okay. no talk talk about drive through between like 11 and 3 a.m killing it man uh, and that's when I was working it because I was managing the night shift. And so I was working the drive through uh -huh. and, and that's what I really got depressed with my life because it's just like, man, these people are coming back from these parties and, you know, yeah. from the bar and it's like, Hey man, how you doing? What do you want? <laughs> this sucks. You know, I'm stuck in the Taco Bell and you're coming from a party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. 
those those early jobs, man, where you gotta you gotta do something. But you know, it's that stuff that builds character, you mm-hmm. know. And I mean, I remember when. I mean, I must have been ten, and during the summer we'd go pick berries, mm-hmm. and you know, I remember it was like. I mean, and this was early eighties, you know, it was like a dollar 25 a flat. Yeah. And that first day I was so sick because it's like, <laughs> I was, one for me, one for you. One for me. I mean, I was so sick because I ate so many strawberries that yeah. day, yeah, I believe it. but you know, then it's like, man, it takes a lot of strawberries to fill that flat. Yeah. You know and It's like, I was making like a dollar 25 a flat. Yeah. And I mean, my first job, I was 13. And, uh, so my mom got us this gig basically pulling blackberry bushes behind the swimming pool in exchange for free sw- swimming tickets. Mm-hmm. You know, we were broke white trash. You know, that's <laughs> how we did things. <laughs> and uh, I remember I got this big vine and I'm pulling on it, pulling on it and finally let loose and I fell off the wall and I broke my wrist. Oh shit! And so I was in a cast for a long time, you know, mostly cause I was stupid and you know, I got about mostly healed and then I'm kind of fucking around on the skateboard. Oh, rebroke it. <laughs> and uh, so the swimming pool um, offered me a job as a cashier. So that was my first job. I was 13 years old. Wow. Dude, I didn't realize you could, isn't there some sort of employment legalization I don't think it was really something. legal back then. I think they were just kind of trying to keep me from suing them for breaking my wrist. <laughs> They're like, somebody hire him, please. Which it's like, come on, mom. You know, if you'd have done the right thing, I could have had went to college. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, dude, my first job was in a cherry orchard when I was 14. And same deal. You could eat as many as you wanted, yeah. but I hated cherries. So I never ate them. And, uh, well, I think they let you because you figure it out the first time you do. Yeah. Most of the people there would eat a ton the first few days and then they were done. (laughs) And I was just like, these are gross, man. I don't want them at all. But my, I had bad allergies. So that's what I remember the most is just sneezing (laughs) and just runny nose the whole time, dude. They're so bad. It was, you know, back in those days it was, well, so we lived on a farm too. And so we, you know, we had to go milk the cows and, you know, feed the chickens and collect the eggs. And uh, This was in Portland? Uh, it was out in Banks. In Banks. Yeah. Okay. So my first memory, it's, it was really weird because it's like my first memory was I remember waking up and going downstairs and went to the kitchen and had a bowl of cereal and I see people moving around all over the place. And it was the day that we were moving from Portland to Banks out to the farm. How old were you? Six. Six. And uh, so we were out at the farm from the time I was six until 12. And then we kind of moved around a little bit and then ended up settling in Cottage Grove by the time I was, well, in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that farm. Was it cool? Did you like it? It was a lot of work. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was kind of cool, you know, kind of being around the animals and stuff, but 
Um, and there, you know, it was, it was 10 acres, you know, so there was a lot of room lot. to kind of go screw around at. And uh, I remember way up the hill, there was this tree and it had this branch that kind of came down like this. And so I just go up there and sit on it like a swing and stuff. <laughs> Where's Rich? <laughs> uh, you know, but it's like, there was, there was eight of us kids still living at home then. And dude, it was crazy. What was that like, man? Seven siblings from what, from what so, age to what age? So my dad had two kids from his first marriage. Uh-huh. My mom had three. And then they had five and I'm the Dude. oldest of the five. So, you know, my, when my dad got divorced, uh, I think the kids end up going with their mom. And so, you know, we'd see them every once in a while, but, um, dad ended up adopting mom's older three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was always at least us eight and, I think that's where I have a hard time with people that have a lot of kids because to me, it's, it's very selfish because it's like, I never had that one-on-one time with mom or dad. Um, you know, it's like basically my older sisters were kind of more involved with raising us kids than mom was. Mm -hmm. Um, because, well, you know, dad was always at work, you know, he had, he had all these mouths to feed. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, you know, mom, she was going through her own stuff. And I think that, I think she's got a lot of mental issues. Um, you know, she ended up doing a couple tours of, you know, asylums back in the day. And, uh, while you guys were all there. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, you know, so she was kind of going through her own stuff and wasn't really in the position (laughs) to, to raise all these kids. Yeah. Um, Dude, that's a lot for anybody. I could never even imagine. Ten kids. I mean, I had one, and I'm like, about the time she's six or seven, I'm like, all right, I think I got this figured out enough. I could probably have a second. Um, <laughs> that's just a lot of kids. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I mean, and this was back in the 80s, you know, everything was cheap. Mm-hmm. But it was like 50 bucks for us to go to McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Um you know, everything was a huge ordeal because you had to pack all these kids into the station wagon and, you know, and going to church, you know, it was not an act of God. You guys <laughs> all fit in one car? Yeah. I mean, we always had vans, you know, these big cargo <laughs> vans or, you know, the long station wagons. Yeah, yeah. And, um, Holy shit, dude. Yeah, it was crazy. I cannot imagine the logistics of that. I mean, I love kids. I would have, I would have 10 kids, but I get what you're saying. Like I want to spend individual time with each of them and make them feel like, and I think that's where I came with, with my kid is it's like, I don't want to have another kid because everything that I'm able to give to her financially, emotionally, uh, you know, whatever is going to be split in half with another kid. Sure. And is that really fair to her? Um, don't know. I mean, that's, that's a personal question for each person. Um, but it's like, I wanted to dedicate as much as I could to raising this one child correctly. Um, obviously it didn't work out the way it planned it, but I also didn't want it to be a situation where it's, um, you know, it's like my brother, Alan, I think he's got 
four or five kids. And I remember by about the third kid, he's, you know, he told dad that, you know, he's having another kid. He's like, yeah, it's just getting easier to tell him that. <laughs> and it's like, uh, you know, I guess it just affected me so much being just kind of lost in the shuffle. And it's like, you know, mom would start bitching at the kids and she'd start down the list until she got to your name. You know, it's like, Rich, go here. <laughs> you know, and it's like, you don't even remember who the hell I am. <laughs> what did I do? Yeah. doesn't matter. Just get out of here. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, it's, it's so chaotic because there's just so much going on and there's mm -hmm. so much drama and, you know, and then it's like mom and dad weren't getting along and, you know, dad's tired because he's just working all the time oh, yeah. and, you know, trying to build a business on top of, you know, feeding, uh, you know, all these kids and, you know, and then dealing with mom's drama. And I mean, how we made it out of there alive, I have no idea. But I think that that's also been my drive is because I remember being broke. I remember being a young kid and it's like, all right, well, let's go school shopping and we're going to Goodwill. And it's like, yep. this stuff smells funny. I don't know. We'll wash it. Why? I want to go to, you know, Kmart, like all the cool kids, and, yeah. you know? And it's like, I was, I was like one of the shortest kids in my class, had big glasses and it's like, and you're putting me in stupid clothes. Yeah. I got nothing to work with here. <laughs> <laughs> Help me out. Give me some fucking Jordans or something. Exactly. Right? Yeah, dude. You know, I... I, I think that that builds character. I think that um, when when you understand what it's like to be in that position, you you want to do something different, dude. My dad, my dad grew up super poor, and you know he'd get new shoes once every two or three years or something. Like right. he, they're fucking so broke, and uh, he worked really really hard mm -hmm. for his entire life and did really well and so there's there's an argument for putting someone in, in a position like that where they have to try so much harder than everyone else right you know and it's it's interesting because it's like you know you look at the the race issues and it's like, you know, I wasn't black, but I had my own struggles, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm broke white trash. Mm -hmm. And, but it's like, this sucks. I want to do something different because I don't ever want to live like that again. I still remember what it's like to have fucking spaghetti for every goddamn meal for yeah. two weeks. Yeah. It sucks. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever want to live like that again. And I don't want to put my kid through that or, you know, anybody I care about through that lifestyle. I want better for myself and that's always been my drive and and I'm glad that I've went through it because it's it's built the character of the person that I am today um doesn't mean that you know my struggle is any better or any less than anybody else it was just it was mine yeah. you know and it's like I think everybody goes through their own struggles and some people are like uh, you know, it was all right. So whatever, we just continue the, the family tradition and, you know, you just keep doing the same thing and doing the same thing, mm -hmm. you know, generation after generation. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just people's opinions and way they live their lives. But it's like, I still remember to this day how 
hard we struggled and I don't ever want to struggle like that again. If I have to work two, three, four, five jobs to make sure I don't have to walk into a goodwill ever again in my life, mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. Um, you know, and then when I was in my early twenties, you know, of course I wanted to be a rock star. Well, I got to go to LA. So I end up going to Hollywood and end up living on the streets of Hollywood for a couple months. I never heard you tell me that. Oh yeah. Um, so there, you know, this pre-internet, uh, you know, back in the nickel ads, you know, come down to Hollywood, live the rock and roll lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, you get down there and it turns out it's selling cleaner door to door. And I'm like, <laughs> no, that ain't happening. And so I ended up going down there with like, I mean, I was 20. I think I had a hundred bucks, you know, I ended up getting this little storage unit or something. Cause I went down there with my guitar and, you know, a duffel bag of clothes and, uh, and they're like, well, you know, if you're not going to work for us, then, you know, we'll just drop you off at the bus station. I'm like, I'm in Hollywood. Give this a go. And uh, so, yeah, I ended up just kind of sleeping on the streets and, you know. You, I, you physically slept outside on the street oh, yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> I hope you're not embarrassed of that because that's cool. It was, you it was actually, horrible. It may have been horrible, but you know what? You actually tried and did it. You know how oh, many absolutely. people want to do it and are too scared to do it? That's so cool. It's just, you know, an, ex an experience. Yeah. You know, it's part of, I was trying to go for, you know, it's like I wanted to be a big rock star, you know, yeah. and LA is where it was happening, yeah. you know, especially in Hollywood, you know, and it's like to go down there and, you know, it's like I'm sleeping on Hollywood and Vine. Mm -hmm. You know, all the cool places that Motley Crue's talking about. And it's like, no, oh, it's a shithole down there. <laughs> yeah. it's good, yeah. But, um, you know, it's like, again, I still remember how cold it was at night. And, you know, what it's like, I'm, was it? it was, it was probably. Late summer, early fall, okay. somewhere around so there. It was still warm outside, but it, it got was cold hot at night. as hell during the day. Huh. And then it was freezing cold at night. Huh. And I remember, you know, like sleeping beside this dumpster and stuff, or, you know, it's like I'd just stay up and walk all night. And then I'd go into the storage unit and just kind of crash there during the uh -huh. day. And, you know, it's like I was trying to find a job and, you know, but yeah, it, I didn't really have any skills, you know, it's yeah. like I was, you know, a young kid just kind of starting out and, um, you know, I didn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, you know, and then on top of it, we were doing, I was doing a bunch of drugs and stuff. And so I ended up hanging out with these guys and, you know, we're doing a bunch of, bunch of meth and stuff. And, um, I remember this guy, he just got off work at McDonald's and he came walking by and handed us, you know, a bag full of the leftovers and, you know, that was our dinner for the night. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still remember how much that sucked. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I remember I'm sitting there with this gang, you know, group of guys and we're just hanging out and bullshitting. And this guy ends up pulling out this knife, stuck it to my throat. And he's like, you need to get the fuck out of here. He goes, you don't belong here. Whoa. And I'm like, dad, can you give me a bus ticket? <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with LA. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's one of those experiences that changed my life you know and it's like i i'm glad i went through it because it's like i really know i thought that i struggled being in the middle of 10 kids and we mm -hmm. didn't have any money and it's a different struggle to be 
sleeping on the streets and not knowing where your next meal is coming from. And almost getting your throat slashed. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, dude. you know, it's made me kind of appreciate things a little bit more, uh, you know, and on some aspects, it's like, it's also kind of made me a little callous too. Cause it's like, I've gone from, you know, being broke and being homeless to, you know, I've worked my ass off to just to build a business and to uh, build a career and stuff. And it's like, I'm not just hanging out panhandling for two years, hoping things are just going to change for me, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, I, I have a hard time with that, that empathy side of things. Cause it's like, well, do something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, you, I get it. you can't I get just it. sit there and just hope things are going to change. You know, you gotta, you gotta make things change. And I don't know, I, I could be completely wrong and off base and, or I don't know, but that's just kind of how I feel, especially going through it, you know? And it's like, I've been through being broke. I've been through being homeless. I've struggled with drug addiction and yeah, I mean, I was bad and, but it's been 25 years since I've, you know, touched drugs and, you know, so it's like the whole always an addict or, you know, always an alcoholic thing. I don't buy it because it's like, I could give a rat's ass about ever touching meth again. Yeah. And it's like, but I've also had to kind of build my life to, I've got too much to lose if I end up going back to that life. And that was an experience and I'm glad I went through it for the experience to know that I'd never want to live that life again. Yeah. Um, been a weird ride <laughs> Dude, no, that's really cool i didn't know that you've never you've never shared that before uh that that's the point of being a human is in my opinion you try stuff that you're scared of right and either it works out or it doesn't and you do something different well and, you know and i and it's i read about successful entrepreneurs all the time and most of them have failed and failed and failed before they've become successful. And God, I hope those failures are done. (laughs) (laughs) No, dude, that's, that's what it is. You, you have to, you have to be willing to fail, actually do it and Uh, fail and go, you know what? Something wasn't right. I got to try it again. Cause I don't think anybody gets it right the first time. Right. Well, it's like, so we started doing this um, virtual concert series. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're live streaming concerts. And it was basically started by me and my friend Bobby. And, you know, he's a video guy. So it's like, he's got a bunch of cameras. I got a bunch of sound equipment. You know, between the two of us, we got a bunch of lights. And it's like, there's no concerts happening right now. You know, let's make something happen. And... It sounds great in theory, but it's like we've going through struggles trying to build this thing and learning how to perfect things as we go. And it's like the first show was rough. Second show was rough. You know, by about the fifth or sixth one, it's getting a little better, but it's like we're still trying to figure out how to refine it and make it better. And and it's like I don't care if we have a perfect show by any means. But I want to be able to 
move forward and be more professional, you know, and that's where it kind of sucks. And the Portland industry is it's like, there's a lot of, I call it the Mecca of mediocrity. It's like, what's the bare minimum that I got to do to, to scrape by or to get the gig or to be better than the next guy. I just want to hit that bare minimum. And it's like, I don't want to do that, you know? And there's a couple other guys that are doing the live streaming things. And it's like, that's not our competition. We need to strive more for like the Letterman show or, you know, that national level. That's where we want to be. Um, as long as we're headed in that direction, I'm cool. Uh, but it's just going to take work to refine it and build it. Dude, you can't, you can't be the best at something the first time you try it. Like, think about the first time. How long did it take you to get good at playing guitar? Years. Still working on it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Me too. I've been playing guitar for 20 years or something. I can play the shit out of a guitar, but right. I'm not... I'm not an expert. Nope. Like you have to do it over and over and over again. Absolutely. And uh, so, I mean, that's, that's what it is. Like, I remember when I started doing sound, um, probably about the first six months I was doing nothing but monitors. Then all of a sudden the guy that was doing front of house, he had another gig. And so I come in and they're like, Oh, you're doing front of house. And I'm like, okay, I'm a little uncomfortable for this, but you know, it's like, all right, I've been doing monitors. So it's like, it's five different front of houses versus just one. This should be okay. Yeah. I remember at the end of the show, the guy came and I'm talking to my boss right next to me. And this guy comes over shaking his finger at my boss's <laughs> face. He goes, I don't appreciate you training your flunkies during our fucking set. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm never going to do sound again. Yeah. And I've destroyed some shows. Uh <laughs> learning how to do it <laughs> Me too. and but it's like you have to fail to learn how to yeah. succeed yeah and you know a couple years ago i got a gig at the um at the amphitheater and i'm like this is cool at the gorge or sorry uh ridgefield clark county yeah yeah so um i was basically kind of the house tech and i'm like this is cool. I can kind of kick it here for a while. This is kind of, you know, the level I want. So we were doing, it was during graduation season. Mm -hmm. So we're doing like all these graduations and stuff. And we had this one where these bagpipers come in and go to the front of the stage. And then all the kids are following in and, you know, sitting in the chairs or whatever. And so I had like some mics above the, bagpipes and kind of below and it's like oh i want a little bit more of that low end so i went to to go turn that up a little bit well on my board all the oxes are over here this board they're over here these are presets i don't know what the fuck this preset was <laughs> i hit that thing everything went to 100 <laughs> percent 8500 people in that place oh man and it's like i've been doing this for 20 years <laughs> Still making mistakes. Yay me. <laughs> Dude, that's great. There's this awesome story of um, Billy and Rick were out at the gorge. And I can't remember if it was for Sasquatch or something else. But they, the audio engineer had some sort of digital console, like a Digio 2 or something. Or what? Uh, what is what does Pro Tools make? Digi-what? Uh, some sort of avid console. Right, you know right, what I mean? Exactly where you could load 
presets, right? right? And so the previous band had a different preset and the, the new guy showed up to load the preset and he loaded it. Nothing was set up correctly. And, uh, dude, it was, um, it was some nineties band, a list, like not Nickelback or something, but like something pretty, pretty like puddle of mud or something like that. And the entire preset was fucked. (laughs) And so the guy basically had to go through inputs during the live show. And so he... He's checking, he's checking like the kick level while they're playing a song (laughs) for the whole crowd. And then like a minute later, he moves to the snare and then like the song ends. And a minute later, he moves to the hat. Like everything was completely gone and the show's just happening. I, you know, it's, it's weird because it's like when I first started, um, I was working with salsa bands, you know, so 13, 16 piece bands, they don't sound check. They just come in. Hey, everybody, how's it going? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like I kind of get a good idea of what they wanted in their monitors. And then as they start playing, it's just like I'm spinning knobs. and you know. So I got really good really fast. And so when stuff like that happens, it's like, all right, I know how to just make it happen right now. Yeah. And at least get a good basic and then kind of come back to it and refine it. Sit there for a minute. Oh, dude. On a kick drum, it's like... Rick said it it was painful. Like, so painful. And, uh, dude, it reminds me of the show when um, I did one for you and Howie was there. And it was at... uh, What's the club that was on? The Refactory. (laughs) Refactory? Yeah. Right? Dude, some four-piece... They were like country rock. And they showed up, and I couldn't... I didn't have time to get them ready beforehand. And so I just had to go right then. And it wasn't that bad. Like, it was fine, whatever. Uh, but he comes over, and he's got a drink the whole time. He's like, what's going on, man? What's going on? Why can't I hear this? Why can't I hear the guitar? What's going on? I'm like, dude, just give me a second. I'm going to figure it out. Was that Chad Williams? <laughs> it might have been Chad Williams. <laughs> yeah, it might have been. Yeah. But he was he was all up, all over me, dude. You know, but it's those gigs that it builds your character and, you know, and you either learn from it or you're done. I remember doing this gig at, um, at the Paris, my buddy, um, called me. He's like, Hey, we're opening up for faster pussycat. Can Mm -hmm. you come do sound for us? I'm like, yeah, dude, no problem. So I go down the sound guy ended. He was like halfway through sound check with faster pussycat. And I'm like, Oh, that sounds horrible. Whatever, not my gig. So then um, I did sound, you know, I'm doing sound checking my my buddy's band because they're up first. And uh, he's like, hey, so then their sound guy comes over and he's like, hey, can you kind of turn it down? I don't want you to, you know, blow out the headliner. I'm like, okay, whatever. Uh, so I did sound for them. They sound great. Get them done. I'm out. So the next two bands, I think he kept my presets on mm-hmm. um, you know, at least like my EQ settings or whatever, they sounded okay. Then Faster Pussycat came up and he recalled their uh, their preset and it was just feeding back all over the place. And then I think by the second song, the singer was like, 
you're the worst sound guy we've ever had. What is wrong? And it's like, oh my God, these guys have been like touring for like 35 years. It's like, ow. Well, he's going to learn. He said that into the mic to the yeah. PA to everybody. And I was like, man, that poor kid. He's either going to. Oh, he's dude. either going to quit this industry or he's going to go, okay, I need to learn, learn from this. There's nothing like getting embarrassed to make you reevaluate your life. Oh, and I've had it so many times, oh, you know, and it's like, I, I feel pretty confident when I go out and do sound now that I'm going to make it sound good yeah. and that I'm going to do a good job. But it took a lot of failures and times where it's just like feedback's coming out of nowhere. What's going on? I don't know. It's just, I don't know. Dude, that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing I tell everybody about a live event video. It's not that hard. No. You can set it up beforehand. If, if it's all good before the show, it's going to be fine. Lighting, as far as I know. As long as it doesn't go dark. As long as it doesn't go dark, it's fine. Nobody really notices. Yeah. It's cool. Audio is the hardest everybody's ears are different mm. everybody hears sounds differently every single spot in the room sounds different you will get the most complaints about the audio in any venue ever it's oh, so I remember, fucking hard dude i remember doing this gig at the art museum and i don't even remember what the band was and i'm like this sounds this is like the best mix I've had in a long time. This sounds amazing. And the client comes over. It sounds like crap. Can you turn it down? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just ruined my life. I thought I was doing a pretty good job. But, you-, you know, it's and it's so subject, subjective. Yeah. And, you know, and everybody's got their own idea on what they need to do. And, yeah. you know, it's like I've been out to clubs so many times and it's like, you know, it sounds like shit, go fix it. It's not my gig. Yeah. You know, and it's like that's the last thing they need when they're struggling is to have another person up their ass. Exactly. I've been that guy, you know, it's like, no, especially when you're doing a club gig and like the violinist uh, girlfriend is coming up to you. I can't hear violin. Can you put more violin in the mix? See, and that's where I've just, I think I've learned to be snarky and just sarcastic. And it's like, it's for the best. He's not playing real good tonight. (laughs) You can never mix it correctly for all the girlfriends in the room. Never. Oh, well, so it's funny. uh, So we're doing this, uh, this live stream concert and uh, one of the bands ended up bringing like a couple of their girlfriends or wives or whatever. And so they're doing sound check and it's like, oh, he's got to come way up. I'm like, there's no mains. This is all going straight to the internet. Those are just monitors for them. You're not going to hear anything. Uh, Well, I can't hear him. Well, that's the point. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't experienced that one yet. That's a good one. This is not what you're going to be hearing. Yeah. You got to go get it on the internet. You'll hear it. Go outside. Yeah, dude, it's hard. It's very hard. That's why I quit doing it. You know, and, nice I, I, and I love doing it, um, you know, and I love the challenge of it. But I think that I've got to the point where it started getting boring for me. And yeah, it's like I needed a new too. challenge. Yeah. And it's like that's why I started getting into lighting. And it's like, okay, well, now I understand lighting real good. And, you know, it's like some of the stuff that we're doing on this live stream show, I'm like, some pro shit. I'm doing a good job. 
uh, all right, well, I need to learn a little bit more about the <laughs> video side. And it's like, I'm always looking for that next challenge, you know, yeah. to, to grow as a person and as a, as a production guy. And, you know, and it's like, especially with everything changing right now, it's like, how do you do a live stream? All right. Well, I'm going to learn it. Exactly. I mean, that's what we do. We, I mean, there's new, there's new stuff coming out every year that you have to, Purchase, read right. the manual, figure out how it works. Manual? Yeah. What do you mean? Manual? Uh, what's that? That you just screw around with it till you figure it yeah, out. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, anytime somebody, like a family member or something, is like, hey, how do I do this on my computer? What do I do? Blah, blah, blah. I just Google it. Yeah. That's how I learn everything. Can you install my car stereo? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but I don't want to. Yeah, that's that's not what I do. <laughs> and that's that's always the frustration about this business is it's like, so what do you do? Um, can you DJ my friend's wedding? No, <laughs> that's not I my. I can, but I could, but I don't, I don't want, want to. You know, that's where it's funny because it's like I get calls every once in a while. It's like, hey, can you DJ wedding or how much you charge for? It's not really my thing. Well, how much you charge to do it? All right. Well, if you make it worth my while, we'll, we'll, we'll do I, it. Am sure. I going to get food? Right. And booze? <laughs> yeah. All right, dude. Well, uh, two and a half hours. You want to wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right, dude. I mean, it's kind of like we're at work again. Pretty much. That's where it's been, you know, and I thought about this. It's like, it's been really weird because it's like for what a decade we were working together between the art museum and the convention center. And dude, I, we, I was at the convention center. You got hired. I have this vivid memory of hanging out and talking to you in the, um, I forget what we called it. Something dead case storage or something right. like that. You know what I'm talking about? Uh huh. Hanging out in there, and then I went to the art museum. Then you came over to the art museum, and then, dude, I saw you every day, all the time, yeah, for years. Right. And then when I left, that's when I stopped seeing you, and that was like uh, four years ago. Yeah, right yeah. about that. Yeah, but dude, I've been hanging out with you for a long time. Absolutely, since like two thousand eight, probably. I'm trying to think. So. It was so weird because it's like, it was, it was kind of a play on numbers. I remember my dad passed away in June 4th or June 7th, 2004. Mm -hmm. And I got hired on it at the convention center June 4th, 2007. Okay. They just swapped. Yeah. 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 And I started there, uh, May of six. So I was there for like a year and then you got hired. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you went to the art museum, I mean, you were there maybe a month or two before you brought me in. Not that long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I got them to uh, bring you on and Cassie and Luke. It was like. It's an all-star cast. <laughs> just, I know. It's like, who, who can we get? And we just pulled everybody from the convention center and they're like, what? And that's the cool thing about this business is it's like, you know, you really get to know people and their skills. And once you're able to work together, it's just like, I mean, if you put you 
me, Luke, and Cassie in, in a room, we could set shit in no time and mm-hmm. it'd be flawless mm-hmm. because we've worked together so much and and it would be so enjoyable because mm-hmm. we love hanging out with each other and you know and that's where i mean work is work but if you can figure out how to work with the people that you love working with it just makes it so much better yeah and you know and then to see cool sets that we make it's it's awesome you yeah. know and it's like it's i wouldn't change change this business for anything yeah you know and and i'm so thankful for the people that i've been able to to work with along the way and you know build those friendships and yeah it's you awesome. think think about all the crazy people we've met in the last 20 years like the the most insane personalities ravi <laughs> 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 fucking Robbie, dude love that guy i love that guy too <laughs> and so that's many- that's the thing is that there's been so many people along the way that you know it's like they've brought their own uniqueness to the table and yeah dude like uh like seth yeah or drew dude i haven't talked to either of those guys in 10 or 15 years like there's so many people we hung out with and worked with every day yeah. they were just like weird eccentric artists you right. know and who knows what they're doing now it's it's so crazy all, all the people that we worked with this was not their job this this was the thing that they did while they were trying to fund their side project you know right. or their their real project exactly you know? it's, crazy. it's it's so it is really crazy and you know it's been such a good time yeah you know when it really comes down to it it's like there's been frustrations. I mean, definitely, you know, it's a job, you know, you're going to have your bad days and you know, your rod walkers. And- <laughs> Dude, I, I was wondering if you were going to bring them up. I, I'm going to reach out to him and hopefully get him to come hang out with me. Awesome. I haven't talked to him in a long time, dude. Nice. He, he's got some really cool stories. He never really got into it that deeply, but dude, he used to, um, he used to work for some record label. And Over he, in Hawaii, right? Right? Yeah. yeah. And he hung out with the Chili Peppers. Right. He, like, he was responsible for them exactly. for a couple of days. Like, he, I think he's got some stories. Oh, I'm sure he does. I want to get him over here. Should get Chuck, too. Yeah. Chuck's, I, I, I ran into him um, a few months ago mm-hmm. at Pro Sound. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's a good I guy. saw him sometime in the last year because he's out at Expo. But he he's a cool guy. I like him, too. Yeah, dude. We, we have... Interacted with some very interesting individuals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude. Cool. Been a good chat. Yeah. Glad you did it with me. You too.